I am an abolitionist, I glory in the name. Though now by slavery's minions hissed and covered o'er with shame. It is a spell of light and power, the watchword of the free, who spurns it in the trial hour, a craven soul is he. I am an abolitionist, then urge me not to pause, for joyfully I do enlist in freedom's sacred cause. A nobler strife the world ne'er saw than slave to disenthrall. I am a soldier for the war, whatever may I Am an Abolitionist, performed by the Duchess Anti-Slavery Singers, part of the Mid-Hudson Anti-Slavery History Project in Poughkeepsie, New York. The song was written in 1841 by William Lloyd Garrison, printed in his major abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. Just a decade later, the abolitionist movement would be shifting their tactics from a nonviolent resistance to slavery, to purchasing weapons, funding militias, and sending anti-slavery settlers to the contested state of Kansas, where a guerrilla war was being waged in the years leading up to what was the deadliest conflict in American history, the Civil War. Compared to the bloodshed of the 1860s, the prior fight in Kansas is but a tiny drop. But the massive significance of what took place in what became known as Bleeding Kansas cannot be overstated and is too often misunderstood. This episode is a prequel to our recent podcast titled Like Men of War, How Black Troops Whipped the Confederacy. After that episode, I knew there was so much left to be explored both in the lead up to the Civil War and in the years afterwards. So we polled our listeners and asked what they wanted to hear next, a prequel about Bleeding Kansas or a sequel about Reconstruction. With a few hundred votes, a prequel about Bleeding Kansas narrowly won the battle of online democracy. And so here we are. If you haven't listened to the main episode, Like Men of War, I do recommend that one first, but there's really no spoilers here, and so if you prefer to start with the prequel, have at it. And soon we will publish a sequel about the incredibly important history of Reconstruction upon the still smoldering ashes of slavery. So again, I am joined by Eugene Perrier, author, organizer, and host at Breakthrough News. Eugene, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be back. So uh, in our last discussion on black troops in the Civil War, we really briefly touched on the topic of today, which was that the first combat engagement of black men in U.S. Army uniforms with Confederate forces was a unit out of Kansas. And you briefly talked about the significance of that as like the first logical place that would happen, since in Kansas, there is already a kind of guerrilla war playing out between pro and anti-slavery forces. You also made reference to how some of the more hardcore abolitionist union commanders, people like Colonel James Montgomery, were former Jayhawkers, as they were called, in this pre-Civil War battleground of Kansas, and that they basically took those tactics that played out in Kansas to a whole new level when they were in command of these, you know, pretty numerous Black units. And so before we start this discussion, you know, the last topic we talked about, the contribution of Black troops in the Civil War, there's not a lot out on there. There's, of course, some books. and But when you look online to do research on that for documentaries and podcasts and whatever, there's not very much content on that. Bleeding Kansas is quite different. There is a lot 
uh, out there on this era on Bleeding Kansas. Even like, you know, I was, there's this one like History Channel documentary on it and like Bill Maher and Sheryl Crow are like people that they interview about Bleeding Kansas, which is kind of funny. So I don't know, do you have any like kind of opening thoughts about how you see this topic depicted in popular culture and kind of what it it misses overall? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that... You know, it, as you say, I mean, this is a, a very sort of worked over topic in some ways, certainly from a literary perspective, given that, you know, the 1850s writ large is more or less the pivotal pivotal turning point or one of the most pivotal turning points, you know, in the history of the country uh, as setting the stage and setting the foundation for the Civil War and everything leading up to it. And, you know, bleeding Kansas, the conflicts in Kansas tend to be sort of right uh, at the center of that conversation, because it really did represent the apogee of that struggle, which is seen by the way there was uh, an armed struggle, a guerrilla war to some degree at a low level of intensity over the issue of slavery versus anti-slavery views. You know, the Kansas State House has a People probably know the picture more than they know that it's in this Kansas State House called the Tragic Prelude. It's a painting, and it's sort of like uh, you know John Brown is very prominent in the forefront, and then you see sort of right behind him, kind of clashing Union and Confederate forces, and uh, the imagery of storms and things like that in the air and in the heavens that sort of speak to the events of Kansas as the Tragic Prelude to the Civil War. And so, you know, in that sense, I would actually say I don't think it's very well depicted in popular culture. I mean, I think there's a lot out there about it, which in a way makes it sort of a strange reality. I mean, I think it depends on sort of how you look at it uh, in terms of of the various elements. I mean, there's things I haven't, you know, seen, of course, like the Good Lord Bird, which is probably the most, you know, biggest, most recent take on John Brown, which certainly speaks mm-hmm. to this. Uh, you know, there is that actually that movie, um, uh, what is it? Is it Ride with the Wind or something like that with Tobey Maguire? Um, the name of it is eluding me now. And also, um, anyway, it's set in the Civil War during the, that sort of guerrilla battle in Missouri, but it kind of references back to some of these things. And and in a way that, that the Civil War in that, that theater, uh, that sort of Kansas, really Missouri theater was so overdetermined by the history of the bleeding Kansas. It sort of reads backwards a lot of ridiculous political views, especially on slavery, um, you know, into that context and into that reality. I think even just the fact that like John Brown in general and sort of a popular depiction is depicted as, you know, something of a of a sort of insane fanatic also sort of says something in and of itself um, as well. Uh, the idea that the, you know, the University of Kansas Jayhawkers are of course, you know, the Jayhawks. Everybody knows University of Kansas, but it's like that that Jayhawk bird looking thing. Um, so it's totally disconnected from mm-hmm. the history of the Jayhawkers, despite the fact that it's the most prominent sort of political cultural symbol of the state of Kansas and a you know direct lineage there because of the prominence of KU basketball over the years and the dominance in, in many eras. So yeah, I, I think that to me it's it's interesting that they don't I feel that there's not a lot of kind of triumphant stories about what took place there mm-hmm. and sort of that puts the good and the evil, if you will, on the right side and in kind of a way that might be considered black and white. And I know that everyone wants everything to be super nuanced these days, but, you know, to the very least to try to put it in some sort of context in the broader struggle against slavery that I think gives it a level of heroism. I feel that there's there's really not enough out there on that 
uh, in that regard as it speaks to it. So yeah, I mean, those are just a few of my thoughts on on one of the things that I think is interesting just about the nature of how history has been viewed from the this era in the current moment because of the counter-revolution against reconstruction and essentially the cultural reestablishment of the cultural hegemony of, you know, more lost cause Confederate tinged narratives of the anti-slavery movement. It's, it's just interesting to me how I feel that that has has had a big impact on popular culture. Um, you know, there's also that movie, I think it's the Brad Pitt movie, the outlaw Jesse James movie, which of course is about the Civil War, but again with the extension, sort of the same thing about how it kind of reads back some of that sort of prehistory of the story they're telling in the movie vis-a-vis the struggle. I mean, it just it's, it's easier that you can get a movie about sort of former Confederate guerrilla outlaws and so on and so forth that are done in a way that's much more sympathetic than you can get uh, for John Brown, for, you know, the other sort of forces in Kansas. I don't think there's ever been a movie that's been made about some of the important elements of this in the context of resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the, if there's a movie about that, someone should tell me. I've never even heard of it. Um, but obviously a critical moment in the North vis-a-vis abolitionism, when that starts to take on the not just sort of a moral suasion course, but a real self-defense type element in those sorts of politics. None of that's ever out there. So, so much is really missed and misdepicted. And I think it's the same thing with the Civil War, where I think the history that's out there in a popular sense tends to be slanted more towards the Confederacy. So anyway, um, yeah, a few of my thoughts there. Yeah, you know, to quote Cheryl Crow from uh, the Bleeding Kansas History Channel documentary, she's like, yeah, it was just a just a dark spot in our history. And it's like, it is the history. I mean, it's the whole history of the United States. It's not like a spot. It's like the entire uh, several centuries. I think just to... Uh, as a prelude to our discussion, because we're going to be talking about a lot of acts of like vigilante violence by abolitionist people. And in doing research for this, I was running across, I run across this phrase a couple times and it was quote, innocent pro-slavery men when describing people that were killed by these abolitionist militants. I don't want to really get into like grisly details of like how bad slavery was in the U.S. and prior to it becoming the U.S., before the American Rev- Revolution, and then for the, a century or more afterwards. But I uh, am reading this book right now called Before the Mayflower, A History of the Negro in America by historian Lerone Bennett Jr. And he had this quote that uh, really, I think, is just something to just kind of frame this whole discussion about the use of violence. You know, slavery was quite widespread. It was, you know, not just in the the colonies here, but in England, France, Holland, Spain, Denmark, Brazil, elsewhere in South America. It was a, you know, a pretty expansive system. And he writes in his book, quote, slavery, to be sure, was a form of hell wherever it existed. But there were gradations of hell, Dante-esque circles, as it were, within circles. By all accounts, the British Protestant colonies in what would become the U.S. were the deepest pit of hell. And he writes that if you were kidnapped from Africa and loaded on a slave ship, the last place you wanted to land was in Georgia to be in one of the plantations in the southern United States. And I think when we get into these issues of violence now breaking out in this area before the Civil War and the kind of treatment of it in popular culture or in popular history and whatever, I feel it doesn't really take into account 
the sheer brutality and horror that slavery was for centuries before there were these kinds of acts of vigilante violence. You know, it's almost like that. It's it's why wasn't this happening sooner, I guess, continues to come to mind by white abolitionists in, in particular. But yeah, I mean, I thought that quote just kind of really helped frame this idea that eventually things break out into violence because, of course, they would have to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think when you look at the context of what was going on, I mean, to say, how could you be innocently pro-slavery? Uh, I think, you know, obviously your innocence has fallen if you would if you would support a system that was, you know, the institutionalized rape of all slave women that engaged in the most grievous of brutalities, beating people to death on a regular basis, using psychological and physical terrorism to keep people directly in line, cutting off people's uh, uh, limbs, ears, noses, disfiguring them and maiming them to either stop them from escaping again after having escaped or to make a example of them for doing so. The complete denial of any family ties, the ripping apart of families as a regular feature of the slave existence. Uh, you know, we could go on and on on so many different levels. Uh, you know, perhaps the easiest way to think about it is to really recognize not only the real life stories that we know, but certainly those that have been fictionalized and, and were fictionalized in the sense of Uncle Tom's cabin of slave women who would rather kill their babies than allow them to grow up in slavery because mm -hmm. it's that real. I mean, the the bondage of other people by one people and the you know lack of all laws to prevent any form of violence or licentiousness to be acted upon them by the slave owners and slave masters is unbelievably violent. It's a system of unbelievable, unspeakable violence and despotism, a phrase that was often associated with slavery at this time. And yeah, I think that ultimately, uh, you, you hate to say uh, it this bluntly, but quite frankly, if you were going to pursue a system like that, ultimately, you got what was coming to you, that you provoked a violent resistance to that form of terrible servitude to have placed that many people under bondage and try to enforce everyone else to accept uh, and promote that and to, in fact, allow you the most exalted place in the political system. I mean, that's uh, I mean, it speaks to some degree in the point that you're you're making about why didn't it happen till later. It's because, you know, the abolitionists in many ways were almost always a minority. It was when the interest of the abolitionists came into the interest of the vast majority of people who preferred freedom to slavery and found the idea of a slave empire in the Americas lording over the rights of the individual free person in the North primarily and also the Northwest, uh, that the cause of the anti-slavery men then became, you know, truly more ascendant in society and abolitionism became a more major feature and a more major player in shaping the views of society more broadly. And it brought things to a boil and it brought things to a head into a conflict. But yeah, I think that, you know, the violence of the oppressor and the oppressed can never be equated anywhere on earth and at any time in history. And I think that this is another example of that in the context of what took place in Kansas and in the Civil War and in, in other sort of related struggles. Yeah, I mean, that uh, I was actually going to bring up that example you gave of something that really hit me hard in Bennett's book was mentioning that there was like a widespread phenomenon of enslaved women smothering their infants so they wouldn't grow up in the, the brutal slave system. And for that to become a, a phenomenon, 
you have to imagine it's, uh, you know, as he describes it, it was the worst in the U.S. than anywhere in the world. And that's saying a lot because it was horrible everywhere. And I think that in our kind of common history that people get, you know, like, I mean, I don't know, for me, I I went to public school in Florida, so maybe this has an impact on it. But there's this kind of depiction that it was just the time, like people didn't know that slavery were bad. It's just what they were taught. It was a long time ago. People had different views. But I think what you mentioned, like there were definitely white people who were like, holy shit, this is fucking crazy that we are doing this to human beings and and kind of found their own ways to try to organize against that, which we're going to get into. But it was not just the times. I mean, there was a, a definite awareness of uh, the kind of immorality and criminality uh, of what was going on. Just to kind of get back into kind of this current era that we're in, just to set it up, I mean, between 1774 and 1804, you have slavery being abolished in all of the northern states, like kind of they were abolishing slavery. Can you explain like that period and how we get to this actual divide in the country where you have northern states where there are free blacks who are born and then there is this the slave states in the south? Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a range of reasons why um, slavery developed, vis- you know, the way it did sort of in the South vis-a-vis the North. Now, of course, you know, for a lot of American history, and you mentioned there in the early days, um, the transition away from slavery in the North, the North, there was, you know, a fair amount of slavery, especially in sort of the coastal colonies, Rhode Island, um, New York City at one point was a major thoroughfare for slaves coming into the country. So in the broader context of the early sort of coastal Atlantic economies, farming economies, uh, there was at first a, a, a relationship between the two. But the initial thrust of slavery was really initially in the South. Of course, slavery came you know, to the Americas after it had come to the Caribbean. And so there was a relationship between uh, geography, topography, and so on and so forth, the ability to grow certain things that was, you know, in large amounts and large abundance over large areas of land that was sort of mitigated towards the South becoming an area for large plantations economies. But then there's the other factor that also is certainly a factor and becomes a factor in the 1850s uh, in a big way. And that is the influx of settlers and immigrants from Europe. Like the northern colonies were set up more as sort of schismatic colonies of, you know, various religions that were dividing and, you know, people who had become uh, marginalized, different new religions that were being persecuted because they had their own, you know, what were viewed as sort of deviant views from various mainline Christian churches in Europe, which tended to be state churches. And so you had people coming in larger degrees from various sort of European communities looking to find refuge from their own uh, persecution. And of course, the sort of commercial realities of that are what made it viable, but it wasn't necessarily the principal reason by which they went there, but it was the reason why they knew they could probably succeed if they could establish themselves. But a different kind of form of establishment of a lot of the Southern colonies that tended to be more crown colonies that were tied more directly to the King's trade, um, the trade of the crown, the so-called triangular trade that had roped in slavery vis-a-vis the sugar plantations inside of the Caribbean. And then, of course, the tobacco plantations, also rice and indigo in the Americas. And, you know, they were more directly established for reasons of attempts to make stronger commercial plays, as it were. And so certainly, I think in that context, you have a very different formation of the sort of quote-unquote 
small d democratic element, if you will, to the different societies because you have more of a northern society that is geared towards um, smaller farms, sort of middle holding farms, the idea of the kind of independent farmer being able to make it on their own, proliferating across the expanding West at that time to a larger degree in many of these states that for many of the same reasons would become relevant for, you know, later in the the history of the overall country uh, in terms of the kind of incompatibility of a system of widespread wage and, you know, wage labor and small hold farming, then slavery really mitigates while the South would then became more of a, of a space for the large and semi-large plantation farming of slavery because of a different kind of approach to how the colonies were set up, who came there, why they came there, and what that sort of mitigated for the political culture. So, you know, you have some elements of it that are religious as well, of course, and different people who are coming from religions that are have more stronger anti-slavery views. I think that can sometimes be overplayed, though, because mm. – you certainly find people of various religions, even Quakers who who hold slaves at various points. But it is relevant and it is important um, that there is sort of a Christian anti-slavery element. And most abolitionist politics, you know, had a very strong Christian vein to it, although just about everything in America did then. So I don't know how much you're saying when you're saying that. But nevertheless, it's that I think, you know, it's a relevant piece. But I think sometimes it can be overplayed in the understanding. But the point being is that the broader political economy of the North was more favorable to anti-slavery views um, because the rise of sort of a large slavery plantation agriculture obviously was the antithesis of a sort of proliferating backcountry smallhold agriculture and free labor and free uh, trades in the, the cities and the towns and so on and so forth. So it sort of favored a little bit more those kind of ideological practices, which of course then were able to be you know, more well-established, the abolitionist movement, of course, uh, in those areas. So anyway, that's kind of you know some elements of it. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot more to it, but what you start to have is a gradual abolition in the North over time, really from uh, uh, the period of the Constitution onward into the early 1800s, you know, some of that is able to kind of creep into national consciousness at some points when the slave trade and, some, and so on and so forth are abolished. But ultimately, that's that's the sectional reality. Now, I mean, I mean it's not that a lot of people in the North didn't accept slavery, though, which is a very different mm -hmm. point. And I think that you know, part of what brings us to where we are in the 1850s is the fact that slavery. And, you know, in the 1850s and in the context of Kansas and the Kansas and Nebraska Act, of course, the most important thing is the Missouri Compromise, which is 1820. When you look at the context of the Missouri Compromise, and you could look before that at the Northwest Ordinance, that you'd always been able to sort of have some level of, you know, cooperation in the body, the political body politic around slavery up until the 1850s, because the issues that really made slavery and you know quote unquote free labor regimes into deeply antagonistic and anti antithetical systems that had to break apart had not really come together yet in this time in America i mean you know you have the movement of america to consolidate itself the united states to consolidate itself sort of east of the mississippi really starting to happen at this moment, right? And the Missouri Compromise, which of course allowed slavery to uh, expand in, the, in what was then called the Southwest, a lot of what we would now know today, ironically enough, as the Southeast, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, not north of the 3630 parallel, which is basically like the north 
of uh, north of the state of Arkansas. And so actually there were some slave states north of that, but basically meant that from then on out, other than Missouri, Kentucky, and Virginia, there were not really going to be any more slave states north of that. But south of that, there could be, which includes like what we now know to be Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern California, also parts of Nevada. So anyway, I say all that to say you were able to have these compromises because the context of the country was very different. And what you really had was the consolidation of the ethnic cleansing of the Native Americans of the indigenous population east east of the Mississippi, where there is a large scope for expansion of both slavery and you know the quote unquote free labor system in the north uh, of the developing smallhold agriculture, um, some large commercial farms for that matter. Uh, also, of course, the rise of manufacture and, and business in relationship to that, uh, but also, of course the significant expansion of the South and of slavery in the South and into Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, um, and, and those parts of the country. And really that becoming a major impetus for the huge expansion of King Cotton into uh, the world economy as a massive commercial infrastructure. And so, you know, you didn't necessarily have the two systems coming into massive uh, disagreement with each other at this time. So the 1850s is really sort of, you know, things that in the past had been able to paper over the differences between North and South could no longer paper it over. And the bleeding Kansas, again, like I said before, is the apogee of this disagreement prior to the Civil War that sort of suggests that at this point it is an irreconcilable contest uh, for sure, and that one side is going to win and one side is going to lose. And so up until that time, really from the founding of the country, you know, quite frankly, pretty much right up into the 1850s, uh, there isn't really a major showdown happening because the contradictions have not become acute enough. And these contradictions that had existed since the foundation of the country, uh, you know, now we're becoming very acute at this moment. Right. And to go back to your point about just the religions and the role that religion played in it and how it's overplayed a bit, I totally agree. I mean, of course, there were denominations, Christian denominations that were known as being like the abolitionist ones, like the Quakers, but you said there were some slave owner Quakers, so the contradictions there, like Congregationalists, Methodists, Calvinists, of which John Brown was one, uh, Presbyterians. And then there was like these mainstream churches like the Episcopal Church and the Baptists that split over the issue of slavery. But I think that you're right. It is overplayed to say that it was, you know, when, when we talk about like, oh, is it that religions had different views of slavery? Like it kind of invokes for me these like people who are like, uh, studying the Bible, being like, okay, what position should we take on slavery? Let's uh, read the Bible and figure out if we should be pro or anti-slavery. I don't think that's the way it went. It was just that if the U.S. founded as this like Christian nation, if you were going to, religion was just, and Christianity was the framework for expressing any political or moral idea. And so I, I feel that the morality came first and the uh, the hatred of slavery came first. And then what framework do you put that in to discuss it in a popular way? If you're going to advocate for any political issue, you had to advocate it for it within justified by Christianity and the Bible and so forth. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that the the religious aspect is important. But yeah, I mean, I think that there was people who genuinely, you know, they just 
hated slavery. And of course, they lived in a world that was a Christian world. And that's how they uh, viewed the world was through the lens of the Bible and everything. But, you know, your your compromise of 1820, where it's, th- things are split, you have slavery legal in the South, uh, you have people who are free Blacks in the North. Shortly after that, I, the earliest recorded start of the Underground Railroad, which maybe you can talk a little bit about, but it was the massive network of helping escaped uh, enslaved people from the South reach safety in Northern States and ultimately Canada to get out of the U.S. altogether. The earliest recorded start of that was 1831. But this was an extremely multinational form of resistance. Uh, White people, Native Americans, of course, free blacks and escaped slaves were the entire backbone of it. Couldn't have operated without them. And so, you know, resistance by enslaved people started from day one on this continent. You know, from 1619, there was acts of rebellion and resistance every day from that moment, even before uh, they landed. I mean, the people would would jump off the ships, drown themselves. I mean, rebellion started immediately from day one. But the Underground Railroad was the first time that really uh, white people were playing a, a kind of a, I guess you could call it a militant role, because even though they weren't using violence themselves, there was extreme risk to themselves, you know, if they ever got caught taking part in the Underground Railroad. But I, I just bring it up because this is kind of the beginning of the organized resistance to slavery in a way that was uh, extra legal and taking a lot of uh, personal risk to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the Underground Railroad for sure was, you know, a miraculous creation. And I think that when you look at the context of what we're talking about here specifically, and I know we're talking about the lead up, but to see those connections of what became known as Bleeding Kansas, the struggle in Kansas over slavery, that the infrastructure for supporting the struggle in Kansas was very closely connected to the infrastructure of the Underground Railroad, which was also very closely connected to the infrastructure of the fugitive slave law. So I think that you can see the sort of backbone of the abolitionist movement from an organizational perspective, um, you know, was so critical and so key in, you know, all of these things, including shaping, of course, the cultural environment, uh, you know, is the National Era newspaper that first serialized Uncle Tom's Cabin, which, of course, you know, polarized, scandalized and electrified the nation on the issue of slavery um, from a literary perspective. But, yeah, the Underground Railroad, which was a system of, you know, essentially hiding places, which included all sorts of things, including people's homes. uh, And there are, you know, a number of them that have been preserved in different parts of the country, but also, you know, various other hiding places managed by these, you know, quote unquote conductors where people would be able to reach certain areas and then be brought on to the next area to get to freedom. And it was obviously complicated. There was a lot to it, especially in the Southern components of it. You know, if you were caught, it's more or less a penalty akin to death, certainly re-enslavement for the slaves. Now in the North, prior to the Fugitive Slave Act, it's a little bit different um, because there's not really a mechanism to have slaves returned. And then this is when we get to the issue of um, what I'm sure we'll get to, what starts to happen in the 1850s. But you have this, this system that speaks to another very important and very critical element of this whole thing, which is the communication grapevine of the slaves themselves and the ability to have the information about where to go and how to get there to uh, uh, down to the grassroots level of slaves in the South is deeply notable. And I think that, you know, it's something that's maybe a little bit underplayed throughout the entire history of slavery, although it's talked about quite a bit. I just think it's underplayed in the way it's taught in the popular sense. Uh, You know, I think in the popular sense, slaves are often depicted since most slaves could not read and were prohibited to read by law, prohibited to read by law. 
uh, as like a mass of ignorant people who had no idea what was going on when the exact opposite was true. And so, of course, you know, there's the famous slang, follow the, follow the drinking gourd to follow the North Star to move to the North. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like just randomly go to the North. You know what I mean? Um, it was like, go to this. If, if you want to escape, which is a huge decision to make, follow this way, get to this place, meet this person or knock on this door and then they'll let you know where to go from there. Uh, so you have a whole range of people, as you say, of all sorts of different types of backgrounds and of course, of course, the free black community that dedicated themselves to being able to hide people who came through and were willing to escape and providing the broader infrastructure around that. And it's really deeply connected from both the physical sense, you know, you look at both the Underground Railroad Yes, the uh, you know vigilance committees and other forms of committees protecting uh, the free population and escaped slaves during the fugitive slave law era, the newspapers of that time that were run out of this network, of course, the North Star, the Liberator, and others that were the primary organs for you know so much of the propaganda, quote unquote, that backed up their efforts and helped publicize the horrors of slavery, um, that they're all sort of really tied in together into the broader abolitionist infrastructure. And I think it gives you new appreciation. It gives me some appreciation, um, you know, when you reflect on it at the fact that, yeah, there really was, even though it was a small percentage of the country in many ways, a very well organized effort that was able to punch above its weight in terms of actual effect and step into the breach at critical moments in the American conversation to, you know, press the the cause of liberty, if you will, to a higher degree. And that includes Kansas, where, of course, it was the backbone of the abolitionist movement out east that was backing the formation of the towns and the cities where people were gathering who were trying to get there to oppose slavery. But we'll get all we'll get to all that, I'm sure. Yeah. So before our last thing I'll say before we get into this era of the 1850s, where we're going to focus all of our time, you know, 1831, clearly some things are changing. You have the foundation or the at least the first known incident of the foundation of the Underground Railroad. 1831 is also when William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, which you just mentioned, starts publishing and being distributed all over the place. But also in 1831, you have an event that we have to hit on because it kind of helps define the culture around violence and fear in the South and, and all of that. And that's Nat Turner's rebellion. And people may know the story, but... You know, just to, to go over it briefly, you know, Nat Turner, an enslaved person, you know, gather, organized a bunch of people and led a rebellion. They killed about 60 slave-owning families as they went to different plantations, liberating more people. Ultimately, they were crushed. A lot of people were executed. Nat Turner, uh, you know, some historians document things like his body, his, the skin was flayed and his body was just hung on display. And like they used the like fat from his body to make into like wagon wheel grease, like really horrific stuff to send a message. They, the slave owners in the South completely panicked. They just massacred hundreds of enslaved people who had nothing to do with the rebellion just to try to send a message. But this kind of, this moment is really culturally significant because it really changed how things were viewed nationally. And I kind of, there is this idea that the South was gradually going to abolish slavery and until Nat Turner's rebellion. And that just screwed it all up because it was like too extreme of a tactic. And then they came down even harder, almost like blaming uh, Nat Turner for this, which I think is, a you know, when we, when we go back to talk about how brutal slavery in the U.S. was and pre-United States, the fact that, you know, it was, it, it was over 200 years before a mass killing event like this actually happened is just pretty shocking in itself that that it took that long and like you know there's all of this 
mainstream criticism of Nat Turner that I've seen, which almost kind of like mirrors probably what was said at the time about like how it was just counterproductive. It was too extreme. But I don't know. Do you have any comments on like what what the Nat Turner Rebellion, how it shifted things as we get into the lead up of the 1850s? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's certainly an important question. I mean, when you look at sort of the reality of of what took place, I think that I'm glad you mentioned that kind of revisionist history uh, about went on because obviously there was a significant level of of wave of repression that that you know swept across the slave states to try to tighten the the screws even tighter on you know so many enslaved people because of the fear of other rebellions taking place. So you know the perception of of that is, I think blinkered on a number of different fronts. I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's important to note that it also comes in the context of a more militant mood amongst black people themselves in the South and the North. I mean, I think that, you know, having had slavery go on since, you know, some would say 1619, worth noting that it was 1527 that the first slaves were brought to the Americas and what Mm. we now know as South Carolina by the Spanish in an attempt to expand their settlement of Florida. And they gave up because the slaves started revolting. Um, So, you know, pretty much since the very beginning of things, there have been a strong courage of slave revolt. But you see in 1829, David Walker's appeal emerge. And David Walker's appeal, which, um, you know, David Walker was living in the North. Uh, you know, he was a militant abolitionist. His son, Edward G. Walker, by the way, uh, is someone who will reappear in the context of the Shadrick Minkins case um, after the Fugitive Slave Act. But anyway, David Walker puts out his appeal, which becomes one of the most widely reviled publications that existed in the country because it was calling on black people to be willing to to stand up and to to fight back, to resist oppression and to be willing to use any means that were necessary in order to do that, although it was not, quote unquote, anti-white or whatever it may may be. So some of it's been portrayed in different ways. But I say all that just to say that, you know, you have this moment in the 1830, 1831, 1829, 1830, 1831, where I think it's very clear from the point of view of, of certainly the black population that slavery isn't going anywhere and a lot of abolitionists feeling the same way and continuing to get, uh, you know, more militant. And, you know, part of the reason why I think this is misconstrued misconstrued is the center of gravity was shifting away from the Upper South and slavery and the tobacco economy in states like Virginia, where this was happening, and the sort of lower South economy, especially the economy of the cotton states and King Cotton, you know, continues to grow. And so in a way, slavery was becoming less important in many in states like Virginia and more important to the Southeast. And these states like Virginia, were not really moving towards a gradual emancipation, as they some people would later claim, and as some people would say, you know, was was being more considered in the context of the Virginia legislature at the time, but really to becoming breeding states that would be used to sell their sort of seasoned slaves to sell them into the lower South. And that ultimately in the lead up to the Civil War is a lot of what was happening in the upper South in Virginia and, and Kentucky and others. They really had just become, you know, primarily breeding states. But the shift over and the sort of locus of the economy into cotton away from tobacco and the shift in the geographical locus of slavery at that moment and the changeover of Virginia in terms of the nature of its slave society, I think could can, you know, the context of all of that and the shifting sands and the conversations around it certainly do, I think, 
you know, allow you to present the period as perhaps one of growing moderation. But I think you can see from the tone and the tenor of those who were the most directly acquainted with slavery themselves, they certainly did not feel that slavery was just going to, to wither away and die and sensed, in fact, that it was entrenching itself in a higher way inside of uh, society, which it was, and politically, it was you know taking the political higher ground further and further and further, which is what really kind of breaks things in 1850 with the the Fugitive Slave Act, and 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 then of course in a major way with the Kansas Nebraska Act. But you know the power of the slaveholders over the national political economy and certainly over you know many other things. People could see that this was not really the case. So you know even though I think it can be presented that way, I don't think Nat Turner's rebellion was indicative of anything other than the fact that slavery was an extraordinarily brutal system that people were willing to resist by any and all means. And that certainly, had he just waited 10 years or something, it wasn't like he was going to be free. Uh, and that, in fact, had he waited 10 years, slavery would have been even more entrenched. And had he waited 20, it would have been even more entrenched. And so the overall trend of slavery, especially into the 1840s with the Mexican-American War and you know the rise of quote-unquote filibustering, which also plays a big role in the 1850s, and expanding slavery into Central and South America, or at least attempting to as part of expansionist moves by the United States, the clear trend um, of history just proves that slavery was actually only seeking to deepen and entrench its power over time, which is what would bring us exactly to you know the point of crisis in 1860 that would lead to the Civil War. Yeah, and you know we'll get into this when we start hitting on uh, John Brown's role on this, but Nat Turner and John Brown both are often depicted as being like kind of crazy, especially John Brown, and both of them having like messiah complexes, like they did what they did because they believed that God was like ordering them to do it because they were like a, a, a ordained by God as like the savior or whatever. But when you kind of think about the context, like especially someone like John, I mean, if you are, are if you are the one that has like the kind of most bold and advanced consciousness within that situation, like Brown, for example, like if everyone, if you're like, we need to like really do something serious because this shit is crazy and everyone else around you is like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe you would think that you were, uh, God was telling you something because everyone else around you is is uh, not uh, as advanced. But, you know, that's just kind of part of the unfortunate depiction of both Nat Turner, even in a lot of the reviews of this new film in 2019, uh, The Birth of a Nation. Of course, the name reappropriated from the pro-Klan movie that came out a long time ago. I thought that was a really good and important film because it, you know, like we mentioned earlier, that like the Dante-esque circles of hell within slavery and the U.S. being the, the deepest pit. Uh, that film really goes into the circles of hell within the Southern slave system and depicts them all in a in a graphic way, but in a way that I think is important for people who don't have a lot of uh, knowledge about slavery to, to see and understand. Back to kind of this era we're getting to, into now. So now we're at 1850. And we have the passage of the Compromise of 1850, which, because as you mentioned, this debate around the, the Compromise of 1820, where North uh, slavery was uh, not allowed and in the South it was, this debate resurfaces after the Mexican-American War and all this new territory is opened up. So they have this Compromise of 1850, which basically says California will be admitted as a free state while slavery will be allowed in what was then called the Southwest. At the same time, they passed the Fugitive Slave Law. You know, the Fugitive Slave Act had been around since 1793, but this law came into being at the same time of the Compromise of 1850. 
and which, uh, of course, mandated that people under the law had to return escaped enslaved people to the slave masters in the South, no matter where they were in the North. And this law, because it required such sparse documentation, there was a pretty common practice of slave catchers who just kidnapped free black people, especially children, and then went into the South and, and sold them into slavery. Um, and so when this comes up, there's there's resistance to the fugitive slave law in a way that hadn't really been seen before. I want to tell this one story of maybe the most significant one, but then uh, maybe you can comment on that and also give some other examples of the types of things that were done to resist the fugitive slave law. But there's something known as the Christiana resistance. Some refer to it as the Christiana riot, which I think Christiana resistance, it makes more sense. But it was really, I think, the first armed clash challenging slave laws. The first organized armed black people fighting against slave masters in a very real way. And this was a successful armed resistance by free blacks and escaped slaves to a raid that was led by a federal marshal to recover four escaped enslaved people uh, who had previously been owned by this slave owner named Edward Gorsuch. Gorsuch was a slave owner in Maryland, and Pennsylvania was a place where escaped uh, enslaved people would would flee to. So as there is this town called Christiana, Pennsylvania. There was uh, a man named William Parker who himself was uh, an escaped enslaved person, and he had a house there. And so he was, uh, these four escaped enslaved people that were, had previously been owned by Edward Gorsuch had fled to this town. And maybe you can speak to this, but there was, they, so Gorsuch hired cops from Philadelphia to go into this town in Pennsylvania to go recover his uh, so-called property. And they knew that he was coming and that these hired cops and federal marshals were coming because they were being spied on by someone who was a member of what was called the Special Secret Committee. And so um, William Parker and other people in Christiana, Pennsylvania, they knew that Gorsuch was coming with this posse to go, quote unquote, reclaim his property property. So they were prepared when they came. So I don't know if you, if you could mention this, these committees that existed to spy on slavers who were coming to try to reclaim people that had escaped. So William Parker knew that these guys were coming. They, they knew that they were coming. They, he prepared a defense at his house with guns. You know, they had the high ground on his second floor. Uh, Gorsuch shows up with this posse, with cops, with a federal marshal. And he thinks at this time, and this just kind of shows the confidence that the slave owning class had at the time. He just walks up to Parker's house and is like, it's the law. You have to return these four people to me. And Gorsuch actually just tries to walk into Parker's house, just tries to go open the front door and just walk in. So everyone in the house just starts shooting. Right. So Gorsuch retreats back with all of his marshals and, and deputies that are there with him. And they're like, oh, shit, like they shot at us. This is crazy. So there's this standoff, basically, where the people are in the house. They're outside. Over the course of the next 30 minutes, they estimate about 150 armed black men arrive on the scene. A lot of white anti-slavery people who live in this town, because it's like an anti-slavery town, they show up also and start trying to negotiate. And Gorsuch the slave owner, he's like, oh, well, there's white people here. They're, of course, going to obey the law. And so he starts saying, you know, you guys have to make make them come out. And all of the white people there were like, no, we're not going to help you. So the U.S. Marshal, he tries to win over all these white people, too. Like, hey, this is the law. You have to do this. And they're just like, 
fuck you, get out of here. So Gorsuch, who's so mad at this point because it's how dare they offend his property rights, he went up to a man named Samuel Thompson, who was one of the formerly enslaved men who escaped from Gorsuch's plantation. So he goes up to Samuel Thompson, starts yelling at him. He's all pissed off. Samuel Thompson just bops him on the head with a club. He falls to the ground and then everyone shoots him up. Gorsuch is dead killed by a lot of bullets. Gorsuch's son runs up to try to help his father. They all shoot him. He doesn't die, but he's shot many times. Maybe he died later. Um, and then everyone flees. Gorsuch's other son, his posse, they all run out of there and they're all being shot at. I mean, they ran out of there and they were being shot at the entire way. Um, you know, this incident had such a big impact that the president at the time, President Fillmore, he actually sent in the Marines to go do a sweep of the town. They arrested 41 men total. Five of them with, were white. Uh, they were all charged with treason and incitement and things like that. But this this was a, the first real big violent act or vi- use of violence in self-defense against the slave owners. So this is one significant act. I don't know if you want to say anything about that in the Special Secret Committee, but there was a lot of actions like this and other forms of resistance to the fugitive slave law that were happening uh, at this time in 1850 and a couple years after. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, you know, also worth noting uh, that William Parker and his escape to Canada Mm-hmm. Stayed in Frederick Douglass's house in Rochester for a brief time. Yeah, actually, Douglass actually helped pr- most of the people involved in the incident escape. Like he helped charter a ferry for them and stuff like that. So it was actually a big operation to get everyone out. There's like 150 people who took part in it. And so it was a big operation to help everyone escape before charges were brought down and that sweep came. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I, you know I'm glad you mentioned the area, Christiana. It's in Lancaster County, uh, um, Pennsylvania. And it had become sort of a refuge for escaped slaves. And yeah, I mean, you know, the special. Special Secret Committee is one of of a number of committees like this. You know, there's obviously the famous Boston Vigilance Committee in Boston, which I'll speak to a little bit. You know, there is the League of Giladites set up by John Brown, um, also in Massachusetts. And you have them really all across the North after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of institutions that are designed to, you know, more or less do what they can to frustrate the return of fugitive slaves by, as you already stated, you know, sort of spying and seeing where these different, you know, marshals and vigilantes and former slave owners may be coming from. And then often it was in the context of these broader social and cultural political milieus that there were individuals who were willing to use um, armed force at certain moments in order to prevent the return of the enslaved people to enslavement. And that's certainly what you see with the incident there in Christiana. I mean, there were a number of sort of well-known ones. Uh, There was also the case of Shadrick Minkins, which was, you know, also in 1851. And that one was also a very significant uh, case in Boston that would really, you know, electrify the country in so many different ways. And you think these things are happening in the same uh, year now. You know, you're having multiple incidents like this start to take place that are of some significance. But in Shadrick Minkin's case, and I had mentioned earlier uh, David Walker and David Walker's appeal, his son, Edward Garrison Walker, is involved in the Shadrick Minkin case, where in the context of the court case to try to return Mr. Minkins into slavery, there was essentially, well, it's been described a lot of different ways, um, African-American activists, a group of outraged black men, a group of black Bostonians, and a band of black and whites. Um, but nevertheless, we do know Edward Walker was there. We definitely know that Lewis Hayden, both prominent black 
militant abolitionist and Lewis Hayden, of course, very prominent member of the Underground Railroad and the Lewis and Harriet Hayden House, which is on the Black Heritage Trail in Boston, um, is still there and is preserved by the National Park Service. Um, you know, in terms of the just the broader history of, of abolitionism being preserved. So you can still go see it today. But we know that they were there, that they more or less broke in and were able to get Minkins out of the courtroom. He was then hidden in an attic in Beacon Hill. And then he was uh, able to be able to be sent there to Canada. And then probably, you know, there's also the Jerry Rescue in 1851, which was a rescue of an escaped slave, William Henry, called himself Jerry, but it was in Syracuse, New York. And, you know, more or less, it's exactly what it sounds like. There was a raid that was sent to rescue him from the possibility of being returned. It was actually organized and hatched in a meeting of the Liberty Party, the sort of hardline abolitionist political party, relatively small party, definitely an outsized influence in the broader country. And Garrett Smith, was involved in that. And of course, Garrett Smith would also, of course, go on to help John Brown in John Brown's raid. But anyway, they were able to get William Henry there. And also, he was able to get out to Canada. And then also, perhaps the most famous of all of them, or the one that had the biggest overall impact, probably, I would say, in the broader politics of the country, would come later on in 1854, the same year as the Kansas and Nebraska Act, which is a huge issue. And that was the case of Anthony Burns. And I, that one, I think, deserves special mention because the case of Anthony Burns was a major event for the radicalization of a number of people who were kind of loosely anti-slavery to being, you know, significantly anti-slavery in their understanding of what was going on, especially Amos Lawrence, who, uh, you know, is the namesake of Lawrence, Kansas, and was one of the main people who put that together. But he was, you know, very taken by what happened with Anthony Burns. Anthony Burns in 1854, he gets to Boston. And, you know, in Boston, when there is again an attempt to return him, there were very significant attempts to free him, including a number of people who came to the courthouse, uh, tried to get him out of there and get him out of the room that he was being held in. They came with revolvers and axes, uh, you know, as I think maybe 20, 30 people all told. Um, they were not able to succeed. And in fact, President Pierce sent the Marines to Boston and other officials to try to make sure marshals, and I think they ended up with like a brigade of, of troops to make sure Burns could be taken back to the South. Now, ultimately, his freedom would be purchased uh, by supporters in the North, North, and he would come back to the North and you know be someone who he actually gets involved, becomes a preacher, is educated at Oberlin College. He also ends up in Canada. But nevertheless, the, the even though the Burns case was the least successful maybe in all of them, it was still one of the most notable because it was happening at the time of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. But nevertheless, you have the proliferation of these committees that are designed to protect the enslaved population and also the free population, which is at risk of being kidnapped by unscrupulous bounty hunters who were just looking to try to return someone and get the money. And that uh, of course, is the plot of 12 Years a Slave, the um, famous narrative of Solomon Northrup, who was, you know, just taken, despite the fact that he was free. And then, of course, there was the movie that came out relatively recently, which is a fantastic movie uh, that lays it all out. But yeah, Solomon Northrup 
and the experience that he goes through there was not a, you know, it was 1853, the memoir came out, I guess it was the 1830s or whatever when this happened to him, maybe the 1840s, I can't remember exactly, but just showed the 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 danger of the possibilities of this. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a major catalyzing and organizing effect for abolitionist communities resisting the attempt to bring people back. And the thing that really is deeply notable about it is in pretty much all of these cases, the people who were involved and tried for taking on authority were acquitted by popular juries mm-hmm. or never even went to trial because, you know, some right. people, like in the Christiana case, one person was acquitted and they dropped all the rest of the trials because yeah. they knew in Philadelphia that they weren't really going to be able to try anyone. Um, similar things happened in Shadrick Minkin's case in, in Massachusetts. They knew they wouldn't be able to try anyone. So these cases really became deeply indicative of the rise of anti-slavery sentiment in the North by the 1850s. And that anti-slavery sentiment had been sort of radicalized and that even the actions of you know militant abolitionists against slavery could be widely embraced by the broader population of the North even if they themselves were not militantly abolitionist, even if they were you know, conditionally abolitionist, as many people were, or if not abolitionist, anti-slavery. So you know, at the very least for the, not, the non-expansion of slavery into the unorganized territories in the country, uh, that they could embrace something that you know, was in actions that are being taken by the most militant abolitionists does speak very heavily to the nature of the climate and the fact that really the 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 contradictions between the non-slave parts of the country and the slave parts of the country were becoming totally irreconcilable uh, on multiple multiple ways. So yeah, 1851, you see a, a flurry of these things happen, which I think is indicative of it. In 1854, you see the Burns case, same year, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and then that becomes you know really the catalyst for what becomes known as Bleeding Kansas. Yeah, and so we see the the beginnings of a multinational armed struggle against slavery, which is very important. And you know, you know, one of the ways in historical documentation that we know that there was so much rebellion from enslaved people from the early days of slavery were these things called slave advertisements, which is when uh, an enslaved person would run away, the, their uh, former master would basically put up these ads around town to say what happened and who they are to get people to try to find them and return them. And they're pretty illuminating because like one of the main ways that they use to describe the formerly enslaved people is all of by describing the scars and the maiming that they have on them from uh, just the brutality and abuse and torture. But then then we have after the fugitive slave law, these posters that go up all over Boston, Pennsylvania, places like that, that are posters about be on the lookout for this slave catcher. And that's so another it was another way that these networks resisted the fugitive slave law was, you know, when they'd use these network of spies, when they knew someone was coming, they'd put posters up all around town. There's going to be an arrest tonight by this slave catcher that looks like this. Everyone stay vigilant, go into hiding uh, and so forth. And so then, as you mentioned, we're, we're now at 1854. And we have the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which is basically let settlers decide if new states are going to be pro-slavery or anti-slavery, if it's going to be illegal or illegal. And there's this view that Kansas becomes so important because there's a view among both factions that whichever way Kansas falls, if it ends up voting to abolish slavery, if it ends up voting to make slavery legal, the rest of the country is going to go that way as there is westward expansion. Kansas, you know, if you look at a map, Kansas is like geographically situated, like the exact center of the continental United States, where we become the continental United States. And so this idea that whatever way Kansas would fall, the rest of the country would go, it all of a sudden becomes, in the context of everything we just talked about, of these rising tensions, rising militancy, all of a sudden, it's like Kansas is going to decide 
how the rest of the country goes, how the South is going to go, and so forth. And then so you have both pro and anti-slavery factions understanding this and wanting to move people there to vote, you know, quote unquote, democratically for one or the other. And so you have these things called immigrant aid societies that were founded by anti-slavery factions that would uh, sponsor people from Massachusetts and Vermont to go move to Kansas, be settlers there, and then be able to vote in their territorial election to vote against slavery. And at the same time, you had pro-slavery people that were doing the same thing, moving people there. And so by August 1854, you have the first New England anti-slavery immigrants, I guess you could say, arrive in Kansas. Then you have really quickly after that, in Kansas, they start publishing anti-slavery newspapers, uh, which was established by this anti-slavery immigration movement. And then so you have this beginnings of bleeding Kansas. Both sides are flooding people in. And then by November 1854, you have the first election. And, you know, for people who don't know the way that before states would become states, they first, because this is like, colonizing native land. Uh, And so you would first have a territorial governor who would like rule it as its own kind of territory, and then they could apply for statehood uh, later on. But this first election for the first territorial governor, this is how the first election went in Kansas, which kind of begins the whole thing. There is a, no, Missouri is the neighboring state. There's a Missouri senator who's a major slaveholder named David Rice Atkinson. And he led uh, almost 2,000 people from Missouri, armed people, to flood into the state of Kansas. They basically put everyone at the barrel of a gun. They stuffed ballot boxes with fake votes. um, And they basically, through fraudulent ballots and through threat of violence, basically said, we'll kill anyone who votes against slavery or against the pro-slavery candidate in this election. They elect Andrew H. Reeder as the first territorial governor of Kansas at the barrel of a gun. And then we have Right after that, in March 1855, we have the territorial legislature election. And this, you know, was pretty much the same thing. You have thousands of, you know, what were called at that time border ruffians, which were the people from Missouri, the militant pro-slavery people from Missouri who would come into Kansas. They actually came in for this election. They set up gallows in the town, the election. And they said, these gallows are for any abolitionist who tries to challenge what we're doing here. We're just going to hang you right on the spot. So they stole that election. You know, there's about 8,500 settlers in Kansas at the time. um, And they just took thousands of people from Missouri to just, you know, fake this election. They voted in a radically pro-slavery legislature, and they passed radically pro-slavery laws that criminalized, if you, for anti-slavery speech in Kansas after this 1855 election was punishable by 10 years in prison and hard labor and the death penalty for anyone that aided runaway enslaved people. And so you have this, it seems to me that you have after we have these militant acts by the anti-slavery people, then once Kansas opens up to be a so-called democratic battleground for which way the state's going to fall, slavery, pro-slavery, anti-slavery, you have extreme violence and intimidation employed by these forces from Missouri and this pro-slavery faction. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think there's a lot there. I think, you know, stepping back to the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the importance of, you know, Kansas, which you know, first was a part of Nebraska. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting to sort of, you know, think about it like that. I think it's important right. to really understand that context because, you know, why was this so crucial? Because, you know, the country, what is now Kansas and Nebraska 
and parts of some other states, this so-called Nebraska territory, unorganized territory of the United States. So you have by, you know, really, really the mid 1840s, uh, uh, the tensions between North and South becoming more and more significant. Of course, there's the Mexican-American War in 1847, which many people in the North are against because they view it as an opportunity of slave owners to really try to increase the power of slavery over the rest of the country because of the three-fifths compromise. In the Constitution, slave owners have disproportionate power in the national government. And so the expansion of slavery is also an expansion of the broader political power of the planter class. Now, there's sort of a direct clash from a sort of land ownership perspective between sort of, quote unquote, the slave states and the free states. And that's sort of the way it's most talked about and very relevant. But there's also sort of a broader political context that the planter contingent in the national government is more resistant to spending the public monies on the types of internal improvements that are relevant to increasing trade in the West, and also, which you know they viewed as not really benefiting them in a lot, a lot of these things, and them spending their money to grow other parts of the country, some of which were competing with them in some degree. Um, and then also on top of that, they were opposed to some of the policies of tariffs and things like that, that the new emerging hothouse manufacturing industries, not really hothouse industries, really emerging industries, emerging in the context of the growing Northern economy, wanted to protect their position in the global economy and to be able to grow to a large degree. So you have sort of a direct set of clashes around the interest of the planters with the interest of multiple classes from the point of view of the rising manufacturing class, um, from the point of view of the small farmer, sort of petty bourgeois kind of, you know, small ownership, small freehold farming culture and the working class that's starting to emerge in the context of the growing industrial capitalist economy. And then, of course, you know, with all of that, the the proletarian, the proletarianized black nation, um, which is also, of course, lined up against the slave owners and, you know, the very small free black population of the uh, relatively small free black population of the North being a part of this broader antagonized subset of, of individuals. So the idea that slavery was going to expand inexorably and was de- determined to expand inexorably was certainly a very worrisome concept. And you had also at the same time in the wake, the wake of the defeat of Mexico in the Mexican-American War and the taking over of the Mexican lands in the Southwest then led to the organization of two new territories, Utah and New Mexico, that were, now the question was, would they be subject to the Missouri Compromise? The Missouri Compromise only referred to the Louisiana Purchase. So it was, or it was thought to only do, do that. So it was decided in Congress, effort led by Stephen Douglas, so-called little giant senator of Illinois, um, who, of course, would be uh, Lincoln's antagonist in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates when they would run each- against each other in the Senate for the second time. And it's decided that in the former Spanish colonies, there could be something called popular sovereignty to determine whether or not there's going to be slavery in the territories, and that the people living in the territory will be able to vote on slavery, and the thought process being it removes the quote-unquote issue of slavery from the national scene and brings it to the state scene. If people want it, they want it. If they don't, they don't, Um, and that was considered more fair. So when the issue of what was going to happen to the Nebraska territory came about, these same issues emerge. And the issue really comes together of the Nebraska Territory being organized because of the issue of a transcontinental 
Railroad. And there had been a lot of talk at that time of a transcontinental railroad. And, you know, there was certainly seen as something that would be a major fill up to the expansion of the country in multiple ways. There is sort of a southern pro-slavery vision of that and a northern, quote unquote, free labor vision of that. Uh, and certainly Douglas was one of the individuals who wanted to get it to come to the north. He's from Illinois. The thought process, Chicago would be the eastern terminus and it would be very beneficial for them and him because he was known as a railroad speculator and had made some money on similar railroads from Chicago to the south. And he's a Democrat, very prominent leader of the Democrats. And so he starts making moves to organize the Nebraska territory. And Atchison, who you mentioned, is part of Missouri Senator David Atchison, leads up something called the F Street Mess. And then and now, actually, senators oftentimes to reduce the cost of living, maintaining two homes, they live together in like townhomes and, you know, row homes in D.C. And so the one that Atchison lived in and F Street had a number of other powerful senators, Democratic senators. And they told Douglas. And remember, at the time I'm actually talking right now, there is no Republican Party. So we'll come to that. So they told Douglas, there's Whigs are the other major party, and they're very split between North and South. And then you have Democrats um, who are basically a pro-slavery party. So they told Douglas, essentially, there's no way we are going to support any sort of organization of Nebraska in order to allow and make it easier for there to be many things, and but among them a transcontinental railroad and everything that'll come along with it, without there being the possibility of slavery being allowed in these new territories. So of course, Douglas knows, well, that's gonna be deeply problematic. That's never really gonna work. They go through a lot of different sort of permutations of how exactly it should play out. And the way they decide to play it out is to do two things, is to create two states, not just one, Nebraska. One is Nebraska and one is Kansas. And as everyone at the time thought that Kansas, which the eastern part of Kansas, which abuts on an eastern part of Missouri, that's the main slave area of Missouri, that Kansas would almost certainly be taken over by slave owners because they would kind of move in quickly right next door um, and establish quite a bit of people. And Nebraska would, because of a number of different factors, almost certainly, you know, really its proximity to Illinois, uh, excuse me, to Iowa rather, would become free. And then you would have a, state, this sim a similar balance of power, essentially, in terms of Congress. And they thought that this would be an acceptable compromise. But it was not an acceptable compromise because ultimately the other element of it and what the F Street mess demanded was that this that the idea of popular sovereignty then, of course, be backed up by the repeal of the Missouri Compromise 3630 provision. So not similar to what had been in Utah and New Mexico, which was that there were, these were these were sort of special lands outside of the Missouri Compromise, one via this war with Spain, so they were governed by this other issue. Now the whole country will no longer have this bar and any new territory that comes in could potentially be um, a slave territory. And of course, Lincoln in his Peoria speech which comes after the passage of uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, notes this explicitly, that there would be no thing in nature that would prevent the expansion of slavery, making the point that it had to be done politically and by, by humans in order to actually put a stop to it. It was a political struggle. But be that as it may, you know, because of the nature of the politics of the country, which are controlled by the Democrats, the president at the time is Franklin Pierce, and the individuals who are supporting this approach Pierce and they convince Pierce that it should be 
uh, the most important issue for the Democrats. And he agrees to make it an issue of party discipline, which at that time really makes it an issue of how patronage is, is, is laid out. So at that time, the political offices, like the bureaucracy of the government, switched over every time the government changed between parties because you would want to give over the vast majority of the positions to your own supporters or whatever, especially the top positions. So if you control the patronage, you control a lot. So they're able to ultimately pass the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and it enrages the North. It destroys the Whig Party, who had competed in the 1852 election, never to exist again, because all of the Northern Whigs and a good chunk of Northern Democrats are 100% against this because the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, the creation of the two states with the Kansas and Nebraska, it's obviously designed to institutionalize inside of the country slavery to a higher degree. And it's coming at a time where also you have the phenomenon of filibustering. Now, remember, it's also coming in the wake of the Mexican-American War. Now, after that, you have an increase in these expeditions by Southerners and backed by Southerners into parts of Central America to take them over, to make them a part of the United States, to build a broader slave empire. You also have, at the same time, efforts of pro-slavery democratic governments at the national level to deal with Spain to try to buy Cuba. So you have the attempt of you have the Compromise of 1850, quote unquote, which allows the popular sovereignty designation in Southwest uh, America and the new lands taken from uh, the Mexican-American War. You have the Fugitive Slave Act, which drastically extends the the, uh, the long arm of the Southern slaveocracy into the North to the affront of many people in the North. You have the growth of the attempt to create basically a slave empire. And remember, if these places in Central America are part of America, three-fifths compromise still goes, which means that slavery ultimately will become the dominant force over the whole country and determine pretty much everything. And then you have the Kansas-Nebraska Act, where the, you know, sort of force, it, it, I guess forced through, sort of you have this forced through measure that is designed to to further strengthen the ability uh, of slave owners to, to gain more land and again gain more control. So the impact of the Kansas-Nebraska Act is huge because it really seems to be the culmination of four years of this extraordinarily extraordinary power grab, really, by the slaveocracy over multiple levels of the government and the attempt to extend it at all costs at the expense of everyone else. And so it really becomes a major, major issue. There's huge meetings and protests and things that are happening around the Kansas-Nebraska Act, so, so-called anti-Nebraska meetings. After it passes, uh, you know, a copy of it is, is burned by William Lloyd Garrison in front of a huge crowd of thousands in Boston. And as you know, you were saying, then the issue becomes what is the status of Kansas going to be and how is that going to be determined? And you have an effort on both sides to then try to get as many of their partisans as they can into the, the territory of Kansas to do what they can to try to try to swing things in the favor of a sort of pro-slavery direction. And so that's really sort of what leads you there. And then you really have, end up having the formation of two governments um, that happened sort of shortly thereafter and dueling constitutions. For most of the 1850s, you also have the support from the president's party, from the Democrats, for the pro-slavery forces inside of 
uh, Kansas legitimating some of the actions that you were talking about, Mike, in terms of the border ruffians coming in and in late 1854 and early 1855 and taking control of the government and having um, you know their positions, despite them being based clearly on you know quote unquote illegal voting and people coming from Missouri and voting, were recognized by the administration and thus were able to hold off you know, the the popular sentiment, which was growing in the area for Kansas to come in as a free state. Right. And so after you have this, you know, false election where the border ruffians come in, erect gallows, and then basically make, you know, just like a junta government where, you know, you go to jail to, for hard labor for 10 years for speaking against slavery and so forth, you have a lot of people flock to the state. That's when John Brown and uh, actually goes with other abolitionists to, can- to Kansas. Brown forms a militia called the Potawatomi Rifles. But at this point, still, they're not employing violence. I mean, there's all these militias that form in Kansas because the border ruffians are coming in and attacking them. So there's these like self-defense militias in the anti-slavery settlements to protect themselves about these things. And, you know, of, of course, we, as you mentioned in our other episode about the Civil War, the anti-slavery movement had two wings, obviously, the abolitionists and the ones that were just anti-slavery. And a lot of these uh, white settlers were anti-slavery in Kansas because they thought it should be illegal for any black people to be in Kansas. They wanted it to be a white-only state. Um, I don't know how significant that portion of it was compared to the ones that were actually abolitionists. But one of the ways to counter this junta government that the border ruffians ushered in or voted in falsely under uh, the barrel of a gun, these free soilers, the free staters, they organized their own convention where they basically created a rogue government in Topeka. They passed a constitution that abolished slavery. And so there was basically these two competing governments in Kansas. The pro-slavery capital was in Laconda, which was just 12 miles from Lawrence, which was the free state capital. Lawrence, of course, named after the abolitionist that you mentioned earlier. Towns were established by each faction. So Lawrence and Topeka were the free stater, you know, kind of hubs. And then Leavenworth and Atkinson were the the hubs of the, the pro-slavery settlers. And then, you know, you have these Tensions building. I mean, this is a time where it's it's mostly the border ruffians coming in and attacking people and trying to terrorize people. Um, and then you have some resistance, organized resistance by the anti-slavery forces. And then, but there's really not, there's no killing happening yet in 1855. You have all of these tensions in Kansas really, really building. But the first death is what we have in December 1855, which is known as the Wakarusa War. And could you just briefly describe what that is and how it's really the the first shot fired and what will become Bleeding Kansas and Bloody 56, which we're about to get into? Yeah, no, of course. Well, you know, I think it's a it's it's a notable factor and 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 you know, just to make a couple different points as well, um, you know, about the lead up to it is and some of the points that you made vis-a-vis the sort of ideological piece. I mean, I, I think, like you said, Kansas represented sort of the the gamut, I think, of anti-slavery views and certainly, you know, even some of the most strident anti-slavery uh, constitutions that were being brought in during this time were still being brought in regarding uh, in relationship to the exclusion of, you know, blacks into the conversation. There were some conversations about having suffrage for every male citizen, regardless of race coming in at that point. And you had some of the, the sort of strongest backers of the moves. You mentioned the immigrant aid societies that were coming from the East being backed certainly by some of the most radical abolitionists, Brown included. So, you know, you really had, of course, since it was, you know, a tough 
struggle in a way, a lot of people coming from outside of the state that, you know, you might say represented the left wing of the anti-slavery movement, the abolitionist wing. You also had people living in Kansas uh, already and people who were coming there from other parts who might have been just more generally anti-slavery. Certainly a lot of the people who were living there already, that was their 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 sort of position, especially the people outside of the eastern part of the state, which is the most sort of sympathetic to um, the slavery cause. So you really have sort of a broad sort of gamut of the broader anti-slavery forces that are there. And of course, you have some former enslaved people who are living in the, the territory and other places like that, who are obviously a part of the more abolitionist wing of the whole thing. But yeah, certainly you can see Brown coming in. His five sons had already been living there. He ends up coming because they had written him to say how there was no protection against these border ruffians. So, you know, he is coming in uh, to organize, you know, the other forces. He brings allegedly uh, several crates full of rifles, and there are more guns being shot shipped in at this time because of what happened in the elections with the border ruffians. It's it's said, although the story may in fact be a myth, that Harry, Henry Ward Beecher, the father of Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, who was a minister, a reverend, shipped a number of guns and crates labeled Bibles. And so some of the weapons that were being used by the, the militias being organized by the anti-slavery forces were called Beecher's Bibles. Um, but you know, you can see that at this time, it really is just a, an attempt for people to establish themselves. Manhattan, Kansas, um, where Kansas State is today, the Little Apple, uh, also was founded by abolitionists. Abolitionists, excuse me. There's Osawatomi, which of course will later become famous. That is also founded by abolitionists and other anti-slavery forces. But a lot of the new towns really are founded by abolitionists and people who are coming from the East. Now, there's fewer of them coming too than there are people who are coming from the slave state, Missouri, which is right next door, because you have a lot of people coming not from even farming backgrounds, some of them from the East, from the more abolitionist centers into Kansas. So it's an alliance of, of, of those folks with those already living in Kansas who also were against slavery. Um, so you see that sort of broader kind of broad-based Republican coalition or what would become the Republican coalition also in 1854, it should be said, in the lead up to 1856, the 1854-55 elections. So I mentioned the Kansas and Nebraska Act. And what happens in the Kansas and Nebraska Act afterwards is the Whig Party is totally shattered because all the Northern Whigs are 100% against the Kansas and Nebraska Act. The Southern Whigs in the Deep South are for it, become Democrats in the Lower South, Virginia, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky. Um, they're sort of, you know, casting about in different ways that uh, you know are, are are you know ultimately would lead to many of them becoming Democrats as well ultimately or at least supporters of the Confederacy at the end of the day uh, and then you have in the North a range of different political parties that start to succeed um, from the Free Soil Party to they they had many different names but really former Whig institutions and probably the one that became the most notable was the Republicans. And the Republicans, you know, came out of a label that certain individuals running basically as independents in those elections gave to themselves. And that was kind of the one that stuck, that was able to unite the largest majority of people who'd been in the Free Soil Party, some people who'd been in the Abolitionist Liberty Party. There were also some soil, uh, some abolitionists in the Free Soil Party, former Whigs, for Northern Democrats who were disaffected by Kansas into this new political force that would have its first presidential candidate in 1856, which we'll get to. But, uh, you know, there had been, it was just a huge change in the country because what the Kansas-Nebraska Act did was institutionalize sectionalism in American politics, the North-South divide that would end up just 
uh, six years later, leading to the Civil War. And this is the broader context of what's going on in the country. And it's in that context that this broader milieu is supporting and trying to give support to the struggle that's taking place in Kansas. So you have a very sort of broad, you know, political spectrum as you would for the Republicans moving forward. As I've mentioned before, you have sort of the rising manufacturing industrial bourgeoisie, the the small farmers of the West, the workers of many of the northern cities, the mainly proletarianized black nation, and so on and so forth, sort of coming together in a in a loose, soon to be tighter coalition against slavery. So yeah, the issue of the uh, Rockwell War in Douglas County was basically a free stater, a guy who was in favor of not having slavery. Charles Dow was killed by a guy named Franklin Coleman, who was a pro-slavery settler. They actually had a dispute over something else. It was like a land dispute. But ultimately, the county sheriff decided to arrest another free stater, um, another person opposed to slavery, as opposed to the guy who actually killed him. So then there was a posse that was sent to rescue the guy uh, who was falsely arrested. And so then for the first time, you have sort of a standoff between armed pro-slavery and armed anti-slavery you know, settlers there in Kansas. And the governor ultimately calls out the Kansas militia, but it's mainly actually pro-slavery Missourians who the majority, majority of the people who are then camped outside uh, of the town of Lawrence, where some of this is happening. Then Lawrence raises its own militia, and there's kind of a besieging of Lawrence. And then ultimately, the governor is able to, to broker a agreement to escalate it, as it were. But there was one other fatality. Another free, st- another free stater was actually shot near Lawrence at the time. But by and large, it wasn't necessarily the issue of slavery that kicked it off, but it was that issue between the two sides, even though if it was more of a personal issue, that really kind of you know, escalated it to the level of both sides really deciding they were going to try to uh, use weapons to to well, really the pro-slavery side to escalate their violence and the anti-slavery side deciding that they were going to meet that violence with appropriate force to you know make sure that they were not defeated. Right, and so this is December 1855, where really the first blood is spilled in what would become very soon after bleeding Kansas by January 1856. Anti-slavery settlers are like constantly being terrorized by border ruffians. In January 1856, a free stater walked out of his house one day uh, and then was hacked to death with axes on his doorstep by pro-slavery people. Anti-slavery settlers were frequently tarred and feathered by the pro-slavery border ruffians. This was a kind of common tactic of intimidation. So, you know, like you mentioned, these militias were were being formed for self-defense, but they were totally outmatched against the border ruffians who were pretty much doing all of the attacks. There, Then there begins to be some counter-resistance. You know, in April 1856, there's an incident where a sheriff tries to arrest a bunch of free state settlers for just settling there because, you know, they, they are using their whatever powers of the law to try to kick out anti-slavery people. But these free state settlers are like, um, no, and they shoot the sheriff. He doesn't die, but they shoot him up. So there's that incident. And then in retaliation, and this is in May 1856, you have a border ruffians, soldiers, slave patrol officers who come from Missouri, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, about a thousand of them, they descend on Lawrence, Kansas, which, as we mentioned, was this anti-slavery hub. 
they basically raise the town. They burn down the hotels. They burn down the buildings. They shoot up everything. They go to the two newspaper offices that are publishing these abolitionist newspapers. They destroy all the equipment. They take everyone's guns in this in Lawrence. And so all of the they basically take the whole town hostage, disarm everyone. And then they hold a mass march. And the banners, they actually have banners made as they're marching through the town. The banners read Southern Rights, which is a uh, it's a phrase we still hear today. Uh, and they also had banners that read supremacy of the white race. And so this is very clearly ideologically a white supremacist movement that then sacks Lawrence. And this is May 21st, 1856. And then the next, so things are erupting into violence now. It's it's full on violence. And then you have the next day, you have this famous incident where Senator uh, Sumner is uh, gives this fiery abolitionist speech on the House floor called The Crime Against Kansas, where he accuses uh, pro-slavery senators and Atkinson and Butler and all these, these figures of, uh, you know, cavorting with the harlot of slavery. And so he gives this big anti-slavery speech. And then so this guy, while he's on the House floor, he goes up to the Senate desk and just beats the shit out of Senator Sumner with a cane and beats him within an inch of his life. I guess it's a miracle that he actually survived. The only reason that this guy wasn't able to kill Senator Sumner was because the cane that he was beating him with, this like kind of metal topped wooden cane, the cane shattered into a bunch of pieces. And so the weapon he was using to try to kill him with could no longer be used. And then so we have this explosion into violence, not just in Kansas and this this sacking of Lawrence and basically the burning down of the town. But then we have this incident in Congress, which uh, apparently has kind of national reverberations and is a, a pretty significant event in this timeline. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, huge events on on multiple different levels. I mean, you know, you have the, uh, the the sort of summer of 56, where, of course, there'd also be a presidential election, which would speak to the outcome of, you know, quite a bit of this. But, yeah, the sacking of Lawrence obviously was very significant uh, at the time. And it became, you know, really a, a deeply notable nature of how far these individuals were willing to go. And, and Sumner it was actually two days later he was beaten by Preston Brooks, who was the, Preston Brooks, who was the cousin of Andrew Butler. So Brooks was a congressman right. from South Carolina. Butler was the senator from South Carolina, obviously super pro-slavery people, nearly kills Sumner. He's out of action in the Senate for actually a number of years. Sumner, of course, is a senator from Massachusetts and was known as you know one of the most eloquent, main kind of anti-slavery individuals, really abolitionist-leaning individual inside of Congress, had a reputation as one of the more, what we would call today, left-leaning individuals in Congress at the time, obviously made a number of, of great speeches and was known for his you know, speech-making capability. In the context of, of what happens there with Brooks, Brooks actually becomes a hero in the South. And all over the South, people, you know, he's getting, people are sending him canes. There are you know, people <laughs> taking pieces of, of broken canes, uh, broken pieces from the cane, different other pro-slavery Democrats in the country and wearing them as necklaces in a sense of, uh, you know, solidarity with him. You know, one of the canes I believe that was sent to Brooks was inscribed with the phrase, hit him again. And so it just becomes a huge cause celeb. 
all across the South that Preston Brooks has, you know, struck this blow for, you know, struck this blow for the South, essentially, and, and, and the, you know, dignity of the South is, is how it seemed. And, you know, it really becomes one of these unbelievable things. Uh, Sumner is beaten partially so badly because he's a very large man and he was trapped in the desk because the nature of the desk um, that he was in the way it was, he could not get out. So he's trapped in the desk, couldn't get up to defend himself. Brooks had also uh, threatened other people in Congress that he would come after them. He was ultimately tried in a court in the DC, in the District of Columbia for assault. He was convicted, he was fined like 300 bucks at that time. It's like, a, I don't know, $10,000 or something now. Um, but there was no prison sentence for it. He was not expelled from the house, although he did resign uh, shortly thereafter. But it does give you a sense of, you know, there weren't enough people, enough people supported him from the South and other places. They weren't even able to kick him out of Congress. But definitely it went along with the phrase bleeding Kansas, which as a phrase that had been coined by the New York Tribune, which was probably one of the most notable anti-slavery sort of northern Republican papers, you know, also bleeding Sumner became something that people were talking about in the context of the election of 1856 and showing how the pro-slavery forces were so aggressive and they were willing to sack towns and beat senators on the floor of the Congress building in order to, you know, impose this horrible system. So anyway, that led us in, into another element of the, you know, summer of 56, and that's the Potawatomi massacre, which comes in direct response to this, especially, you know, the hearing of the issue of what had taken place vis-a-vis Senator Sumner in conjunction with Lawrence, and you have John Brown, I think we can get to that, then, you know, gathers up uh, uh, some of his individuals, the Potawatomi rifles, and they decide that they want to respond in Kansas to this uh, aggressiveness of the slave power by answering it with some, some force of their own. Exactly. And so that's what we're going to talk about next. And so we have this sacking of Lawrence where the pro-slavery people come in from all over the South to just destroy the town and march through the streets with banners saying supremacy of the white race. Then you have a couple days after uh, Senator Sumner being just brutally beaten on the, in Congress. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that that's how American politics was, was happening at the time. And so Brown is the one that says, you know, he's already in Kansas, but they haven't they haven't really done anything yet. They're there. They have all these weapons. You know, this idea that you mentioned earlier, the infrastructure of the Underground Railroad that began in the 1830s, you know, really played a role in who was who was sponsoring this stuff, who was giving Brown money to buy weapons, other people who were going to Kansas who were abolitionists, who was arming them, who was funding them, all of that. It was all this infrastructure of abolitionists uh, from the North who had been supporting the Underground Railroad and meeting figures like Brown and so forth. But after these these two major events happen, where it shows that the, the slave power is using a lot of violence, not just using violence against anti-slavery people, but of course had been using extreme violence against enslaved people for centuries. Um, but Brown decides that now is the time to take some kind of retaliatory action uh, in light of these two major events. And uh, there's kind of two pieces before I describe what happened. Uh, One, I think it's important to talk about a particular weapon. I don't think it's important to talk about. I just think it's interesting to talk about. And that's this weapon uh, called a broadsword. And you can see there's like a one of John Brown's broadsword is like on display in a, a museum. And actually, if you look at 
old photos of Jayhawkers, the uh, abolitionist militias that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And a lot of these old photos, you see them with these broadswords. Now, I think if people think of cavalry swords, like you see in Civil War movies, they're long, they're curved, they have a blade on one side. A broadsword is not like that at all, especially these particular broadswords that we're going to be talking about. They're short, they're wide, they have blades at both sides, and, you know, like medieval-style swords, but shorter. And they also have, like, a moving piece, like a metal piece that slides up and down the blade in the middle. So when you're swinging it, it uses, like, centripetal force so you could land a heavier blow. And there's actually... You know, this really odd history of these swords. There's a book by Bruce Catton called This Hollowed Ground, A History of the Civil War, where he traces the lineage of these. And they were basically, an armorer was contracted to make these broadswords for the cavalry, for the army, cal- like federal cavalry or whatever. And then they were just like, we don't want these swords. And so they had all this surplus property. And then all these broadswords were bought up by this like weird secret society in Ohio that thought they were going to like invade and conquer Canada. And so they bought these broadswords as part of this forming this militia to conquer Canada, but whatever. But anyways, so then this, this weird society buys them and then, uh, you know, they decide not to invade Canada with these swords. And then so they end up in the hands of John Brown, who like buys them all up. So they're all Brown and his guys are all armed with these short, wide, medieval looking swords. And you'll see the pictures of Jayhawkers who have these these swords on them also, probably because they were distributed to them by Brown. But anyways, I, I go into the story about the swords because I it, it plays a lot into what happens in this uh, what's called the Potawatomi Massacre. So Brown after these incident, two incidents happen, he takes uh, seven of his men from the his militia, the Potawatomi rifles, and says, you know, we're going to take some kind of retaliatory action. And the other thing I'll say to preface this is note that at this time, John Brown is, I believe, 56 years old. He hasn't used violence in his struggle to fight slavery. And he pledged his life to fight slavery as a child. You know, when he he recalls this incident where he befriended this ensla- young enslaved boy that was his age, they were hanging out all day in this encounter that him and his dad had when they were traveling around doing trading of of skins and whatever they, they were doing. They meet, end up at this house of this guy who has an enslaved child there. Him and John Brown are, are being friends all day. And then he witnesses this enslaved child just get beaten within an inch of his life with a shovel by the slave master that they had been dealing with and hanging out with all day. And he says, from this moment on, I'm going to dedicate myself to fighting slavery. Brown spent decades as a conductor in the Underground Railroad. All of the actions he were taking were completely these nonviolent acts against slavery. And so uh, this, this idea that Brown is like some crazed, violent, like bloodthirsty guy, it doesn't really match up with his entire life. It's at this moment that all of these events, not just the centuries of torture and murder of enslaved people, but these massive events that are he is seeing as extremely significant to which way this entire country is going to fall. And he believes we need to do something retaliatory now or things are going to continue to go in this direction of the slavers having the upper hand and being the ones willing to use extreme violence to win. And so Brown gets seven of his guys. They go to a pro-slavery settlement in in Kansas where they were. Uh, they went to some houses and they kidnapped five uh, this is where I first ran into the term innocent pro-slavery men, but they take five men from their houses. There's kids there, there's women there, but they say, we're taking the guys. They take them out to the woods. They take out those broadswords and they chop these five guys into pieces, dismember them, cut their, you know, they just 
they hack him to death. And so this is the first real big use of violence to make this kind of terror to fight terror incident. It becomes known as the Potawatomi Massacre. And this massacre is not very well received in the country. Actually, even a number of people from Brown's militia quit right after it happened. I think one of his sons was involved and said he severely regretted it. Brown never said he regretted it. He said it was an act of self-defense. But this was a big moment. Yeah, I think it is a it is a bigger moment, and I think it's a relevant moment. I mean, you know, we've mentioned some of the other things that have you know taken place right around this time. You know, this is May twenty fourth, and it was just about I think four days before that, May twentieth, eighteen fifty six, that William Walker's government is recognized in Nicaragua, the filibuster government, this pro southern government that's going to bring slavery to Nicaragua. So, I mean, not only do you have the uh, sack of Lawrence, the destroying of two newspapers, the burning of the Free State Hotel, um, other elements, as you mentioned, the beating and the celebration all across the South of Charles Sumner and Preston Brooks, the hero in the South. You have Walker's regime in Nicaragua showing that the slave, and you know, he'd been massively supported all across the South and was very supported in the South and supported by Pierce, who then recognizes the government, um, showing that the slave owners are willing to, you know, invade other countries and take them over to establish slavery. I think when you put it all in that context, you know, John Brown's thought process was obviously correct. And exactly why when he was murdered um, after the Harper's Ferry incident, the, the rebellion there, that it resonated so much, I think, with people all across the North in terms of, you know, being willing to strike a blow against slavery at the in the context context of the slaveocracy being willing to go to such great lengths in order to impose their views. So, yes, in the context of all of that, you know, the 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 1856 crescendo, uh, you might say, of hyper pro-slavery activism in both Kansas and the violence of that and Nicaragua and the violence of that and the imprimatur of the federal government from the president on down essentially supporting all of this you know, then they decide they have to take action, which is why I think looking at it as a form of self-defense in a way sort of makes sense, um, you know, in the context of of all of that and, and, and so on and so forth. So anyway, yes, it does become infamous because because of, I think, the nature of it. It's, you know, sounds pretty grisly when you describe it. And in the context of the pro-slavery forces, you know, they were going to to make a big deal out of it ultimately. And, you know, there are other elements to it that you know perhaps you know was there's other the other violence that had already been happening at the time ha- against the free state settlers also set the tone for this and set the response it wasn't like as you've previously mentioned like totally out of the blue these border ruffians of course had been terrorizing free state people in order to establish the rule of slavery so you know there's already sort of a climate um, of that kind of 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 you know tit for tat action going on there, but nevertheless, you know it's something that's heavily promoted by the pro slavery press as as something very bad. But of course, you know Brown continues to be ac- active in Kansas, and you know then the next big engagement involving him in Osawatomi, uh, you know would then make him infamous in a in a positive way, I guess, across the North. But be that as it may, you know this first major incident here, I guess you could say, in terms of quote-unquote bleeding Kansas, is directly perpetrated by these aggressive moves of the slaveocracy and the movement of the leading edge of the anti-slavery movement and John Brown and those who supported him was, well, we have to, as you said, do something or ultimately 
all of the power of the federal machinery is going to be used to create a slave empire in the Americas and to make the, you know, quote unquote, free parts of the United States more or less the minority of a Western hemispherical uh, slave empire. It's funny because Brown was obviously charged with murder in Kansas, but the state was in such anarchy that he like never went to court and he just kind of was like, you know, they're not going to arrest me. And he was just kind of still existing in Kansas and not exactly worrying about being captured. And yes, and then that sets off, you know, before the Battle of Osawatomie, there's these other armed clashes, which which Brown is involved in. You know, one was called the Battle of Blackjack in June 1856, where uh, two of Brown's sons had been captured and held prisoner by these pro-slavery people. And so Brown led, you know, a small unit of 30 men to a slavery stronghold that was defended by over 60 of these pro-slavery militiamen. And after a three-hour-long firefight, Brownside actually wins and captures this pro-slavery militia and frees his sons and so forth. Um, and then so there's skirmishes like that that are happening. And then, of course, yeah, there's the August 1856 Battle of Osawatomie where Osawatomie, Kansas, was a free state or enclave. It had been previously raided by border ruffians, and people living there were just obviously constantly terrified of more. John Reed, who is a rich slave owner, also a Missouri senator, led hundreds of border ruffians to sack this town in August of 56. And his plan was to burn down this town. Their plan was to burn down Topeka, burn down Lawrence after going to Osawatomie first. And they come across on their way there to Osawatomie, John Brown's son, and, you know, they kill him when they see him. So Brown, upon hearing about this, rushes to the town with 40 of his men to try to repel this attack. 40 guys under Brown trying to fight over 400 border ruffians to defend the town of Osawatomie, Kansas. And there's this kind of long fight where Brown is able to be in the woods and basically assaulting this, these border ruffians that are coming in and is able to hold them off for a long time. But, you know, Reed's militia, these hundreds of people, they have cannons, they have all types of stuff that's far superior to Brown's. And so they're just shooting cannons into the woods. They kill a bunch of Brown's guys and then they eventually have to return. And then Reed and his pro-slavery guys, they, of course, burn the entire town of Osawatomie to the ground. And then on their way out, they attack places like Topeka and stuff that they had planned to do. And so we have incidents like that. And then, you know, anything else to kind of tie up Bloody 56? I mean, obviously, this these were major events, but they weren't the only events happening in Kansas before we get into this rise of the Jayhawkers and stuff coming afterwards. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, it's a, definitely it's an important point, you know, about sort of the the overall role of this resistance, because that's what really transforms Brown into a national figure to be able to get the support he does for the Harper's Ferry Raid, because, you know, they had good cover and their ability to hold out for a long period of time was seen as, as very heroic um, by people all around the country who were, you know, tied in with the anti-slavery cause. And, you know, I think that there are, you know, a number of different elements to it. I mean, you also have in July of 1856, the, the president using U.S. Army troops from Fort Leavenworth and other places to, you know, disperse the free state legislature, which happens there. You know, that's, you know, I guess like one month before, obviously, what's happening with the Battle of Osawatomie. So you really have the imprimatur of the support of the federal government for the suppression of the various free state constitutions. But, you know, the various constitutions are, you know, the ones or I'd, let's put it to you like this. Um, there's a number of them that come through, but you see, you know, ultimately there is a constitution that's ratified 
that is going to be a the anti-slavery constitution is ratified the Topeka constitution, but it never goes into effect because Congress rejects it because of Pierce saying that the quote unquote Topeka government was uh, you know unconstitutional and then using the army to disperse it. So I just say all that just to say that you can see the the role of the federal government in 1856 in you know putting their thumb on the scale for these border ruffian pro-slavery forces to do everything they could to help them succeed ultimately. And I think that when you look at the context of all of that, you can really see that 1856 is the pivotal moment of the bleeding Kansas. It's when the most fighting is happening. It's the most open warfare. And certainly where the issues then because of that become so sharpened that it really does start to shape the consciousness of the country in a way that moves in the direction of consolidating the forces happening, you know, against the, the expansion of slavery and the formation of the Republican Party which runs its first presidential candidate, John Fremont, in the election of 1856. Obviously, uh, they do not win, but it was the consolidation of all of these various political forces that were arraying themselves in an anti-slavery way. And to some degree, it's really the struggle in Kansas that helps sharpen the debates around all of these questions to such a degree to help create a center of gravity around the particular anti particular type of anti-slavery politics that then becomes um, you know, the vehicle that leads to the election of Abraham Lincoln and of course the Civil War and its prosecution and 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 victory. Yeah, so let's talk about the other, you know, Brown, of course, has extremely high profile in this because he was part of these really major actions. And so he's kind of maybe the more well-known one at the time and the one getting a lot of support from the more militant abolitionists who have money in northern states. Uh, but there's also, let's talk about the Jayhawkers because this is a kind of, in a way, separate from John Brown. You have two big Jayhawker figures uh, at this time in 1856. James Montgomery is one of them. Charles Jennison is another one. Montgomery had formed uh, what was called the Self-Protection Company to uh, basically militias in Kansas to drive out slavers and defend uh, anti-slavery settlements. And so they were doing this kind of not just self-defense stuff, but going out and doing guerrilla-style attacks against pro-slavery settlements. And there's this depiction of Jayhawkers, when you when you start to research them, they're really depicted as like, they're drunks, they're criminals, they're thieves, they're bad guys who are just exploiting the situation. That the Jayhawkers just became a magnet for uh, miscreants who just knew that, oh, the country's in chaos, I'm going to go to the state where there's anarchy and just be able to rob from people and, and stuff like that. So what's your take? I mean, were the Jayhawkers that ideological and anti-slavery? Like, what was the motivation of these guys to join people like Montgomery and Jennison to be doing these attacks on pro-slavery forces, these really militant actions against pro-slavery forces? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a notable question. I think it's an important question, but I feel that, you know, Quite frankly, the quote unquote border ruffian side, the bushwhacker side, offered quite a bit of opportunity for the same sort of uh, sort of vigilante freeing um, as the Jayhawker side would have. So if your only goal and only motivation for being involved in this was just to sort of raise hell and make a little cash and look for some opportunities, you'd be more likely to be with the so-called 
you know, bushwhacker faction, the border mm-hmm. ruffian faction, because, you know, they had the monopoly of force to some degree because of the closeness to Missouri and, you know, the support of the actual government and in the national government, that is, and of course, license through that to be able to carry out violent actions, terrorize uh, whole areas and take control over states, you know, irregardless of whether or not it represents the will of the people in the area. So from my point of view, whatever else you want to say about any individual who is involved sort of on the Jayhawker side of things is in the context of the biggest question was where do you stand on slavery or against slavery? Uh, They stood on the side against slavery. So, you know, people have all sorts of motivations and subsidiary motivations and character defects and positivity. And I don't know if we could ever, we'd have to do sort of a person by person kind of evaluation to get down. But I think the one thing that we can say for sure is that the Jayhawker movement was a movement that in my view is probably as variegated as the broader anti-slavery movement in Kansas, but it was essentially the self-defense armed wing of the anti-slavery movement that embraced all of those who decided to take a stand against slavery in the state of Kansas and were willing to defend their rights in that regard against these attempts of the pro-slavery forces and their allies in the government to put them down and to ultimately establish Kansas as a slave state. So I think when you put it in that category, I don't know to what extent it, it, I mean, I mean, it's interesting, I guess, but to what extent it matters to the broader historical conversation about whether or not, you know, in any element of a complicated guerrilla civil war type situation, there's all sorts of things that happen, good, bad, and indifferent. But what's the overall, I mean, there are a lot of things that could be called quote unquote war crimes in the civil war, right? On the side of the union in some cases. Ultimately though, you know, that's not the, the way the union cause is remembered and rightfully so, because the whole point is to, what's the center of gravity? the destruction of slavery. And if in the context of the destruction of slavery, you were choosing the anti-slavery side, that's obviously gonna be a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But I think if you have real moral clarity, that's the key issue to how do you, how do you distinguish and describe these? So yeah, I think ideologically, it's gonna be a mixed bag. Um, just like the anti-slavery movement was of course a mixed bag of different ideological reasons why people came together. But I think you know to describe them as some sort of as as they have been described and as you are suggesting, you know, this sort of semi-criminal band, I think is totally wrong. It's clear their direct political relationship to the anti-slavery struggle and the desire to defend the anti-slavery movement against the pro-slavery forces and their allies in the government. That I think is clear. And I think in terms of, you know, the moral clarity and the moral rightness of the sides here, pretty straightforward who is who is uh, deserves to be venerated. And I think definitely this is a tradition in, I think, quote unquote, radicalism in this country that does deserve at least some level of recognition. I mean, veneration, I guess we'd have to have some slightly different conversations. I'd say so, but, you know, you know, whatever I could see, I could take the way, but certainly significant recognition without a doubt, you know, rather than denigration and looking to take little, you know, historical ironies and make them seem that and muddy the waters morally. Right. Clearly, like if you were just in it for your own self-interest and you're just a, a bad guy who wants to do bad stuff, um, you probably would just join like the side that looks like it's going to win. Like the pro-slavery forces were by far the strongest and most dominant. I mean, they were it was also the law. And so to, to just join the totally underdog side where you were just felt like you're probably most likely to be right. dead or in jail if you took that side, if you're out for your own self-interest, obviously, it's uh, not the side to choose. But I think this is a, a kind of bigger issue, but I probably part of that depiction of the Jayhawkers, instead of being these just militant abolitionists, just 
thieves and drunks who were just exploiting a bad situation. I think that's part of the storytelling of the history of this era, the pre-Civil War and the Civil War itself, to kind of cover up the fact that the struggle against slavery was a multinational struggle, like blurring that, that it was, there were very dedicated militant people who ideologically felt very strongly that they had to take the most radical warranted action possible to defeat slavery. Um, and that's really the history of the, the fight against slavery, is that there was a, a, a united multinational struggle to defeat it. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that there's the historical myth-making aspect of it is definitely important. And I definitely think that it, it's related to a few things. I mean, and yes, the, I think the broader point you're making is that it's really heavily inflected by the the destruction of reconstruction and the need to then change the nature of the history of what took place in the era leading up to and during the Civil War and certainly after Reconstruction to create a very different narrative to fit a very different kind of country. So you have the you know rise of the kind of lost cause narrative in the history of the Civil War, which also carried over into the idea of what the Civil War was about and that it wasn't even about slavery, right? Like that's how, um, you know, that, I mean, as crazy as that can sound now, I think, and it's been so roundly debunked, you know, this was, of course, for a good chunk of the 20th century and, of course, the latter part of the 19th century, the broader historiography um, because of this change. And you have, I think, within that, of course, the desire of the Confederate forces to rehabilitate themselves. But the reason why, you know, the Republican forces, the Northern forces were willing to acquiesce to this mass historical revisionism is they also wanted to cover up their own radical roots. And they certainly did not want to emphasize the early Republican movement of the 1850s and even really into the 1860s elements of the radical Republican faction that became, in some cases during the Civil War, quite significant because of the central nature of the abolition of slavery to the end of the war um, and what that might predicate from the point of view of political forces they were looking to suppress. They wanted to suppress the sort of radical implications of their own politics um, at their formation, now at their moment of really becoming the linchpin of the formation of monopoly capitalism and subsequently imperialism as the sort of broader socioeconomic structure of the United States. And I think it's an important point because, you know, it speaks to, I mean, this is, you know, in many ways kind of a digression here, but I think it's a relevant point to understanding the historical myth-making. You know, I mentioned the New York Tribune that was, you know, a major Republican newspaper, played a major role in all of these events in the 1850s and 1860s and 1870s. Um, but in the 1850s, the European correspondent of the New York Tribune was Karl Marx, with the assistance, of course, of Friedrich Engels, who had a command of English, which Marx did not have. And, you know, the the articles are easy to find, freely available, very interesting on a range of different European issues. But, you know, Marx was also very positive about the Civil War, the Union cause, wrote to President Lincoln, who wrote back. He was involved in the anti-war movement in favor of the Union in the UK, um, fighting to make sure that they did not do anything to recognize the Confederacy. And, you know, also in his own writings, generally had a positive view of the sort of Republican cause in terms of how it, you know, impacted the broader 
working class struggle, the struggle of workers around the globe. And I think, you know, I'm coming to the historical myth making, but I think it's important because what was it that Marx really saw in this sort of Republican movement towards a more, the destruction of slavery, and even though it's quite ambiguous, sort of the, the shift to a more universal form of suffrage, certainly the most universal form of suffrage in the world at that time, anywhere on, on earth. And you have to look a little bit later to something Engels said many, many years later when he was you know, being accused by someone of saying that you know, you'll have a socialist revolution by just voting it into power. And he said, well, I and Marx have never argued that. What we argued is that democracy, which of course Lenin would say was the best shell um, for capitalist development, Universal manhood suffrage, democracy in that sense, Ingalls said, was a system that would allow the workers to present their sort of, to essentially call the bluff of the capitalists on the mark of quote unquote democracy, to be able to form their own organizations and present a program of workers' power in the context of a democratic structure that, if it was true to its own name, would, yes, allow you to vote that into power and essentially liquidate the capitalists. Um, but as Engels points out, and as certainly has proven true throughout history, that you know the, the moments of the greatest mass democracy often become the moments where those ruling class elements who preach democracy are willing to engage in the most grievous of anti-democratic attempts to suppress it. Um, as Engels says, they'll use terrorism and will move from the plane of democracy to authoritarianism. Um, and that essentially the full play of a democratic system uh, of a popular democratic system with universal suffrage will create the best possible conditions to confront the program of the capitalists with the program of the workers and provoke a revolutionary crisis quite clearly. And that that kind of system offers a lot of benefits to working class organizations and people to form their politics and engage in class struggle uh, you know, under the guise of legality in a way that can still move things forward. So I say all that just to say, that that was really the element that attracted Marx to the Republican movement, and of which he is a part of the 48er strain of Germans of 1848, uh, who'd been a part of the 1848 revolution and had come to America, who became a major part of the Republican coalition um, and Marxist among them, that you know those individuals were a part of this Republican strain, seeing a similar sort of reality. And that's why the Republican elite leadership turned on the memory of Kansas and the Civil War, because they didn't want their new politics, which was the politics of the monopoly capitalist that had arisen out of the Civil War, that had wanted to back the Union cause because slavery was to them an economic enemy, and who now had established this new, very profitable worldwide commercial empire that required serious suppression of all popular working class small farmer interest. And the only way they could do that was partially extra legally with the destruction of reconstruction. Um, but then on the same token, they wanted to make sure that the memory of their own party was not tarnished by the memory of, you know, the, of Kansas, of the radical Republicans in the Civil War, of the individuals who, you know, at that time were preaching very radical philosophies, not just about slavery, but in many cases, other things, women's rights, the rights of workers, the social equality between blacks and whites, which, of course, the Republicans didn't want to be seen as uh, uh, supporting in the 1880s when they were trying to have a, uh, a healing with the South. And so you have this moment where the destruction of Reconstruction, which is necessary for the rise of monopoly capitalism by eliminating the black block vote in the South 
which was contradictory but leaned towards the interest of working class people and represented a solid Southern bloc against the unbridled rule of monopoly capital, that the precondition of that was a historical changeover. And it meant the rise of lost cause ideology, which downplayed the Jayhawkers, which downplayed Kansas, which doesn't want, which would take the most hardcore Jayhawker and turn them into a drunken criminal in order to solidify the fact that there was nothing positive in these more radical strains of Reconstruction, of the radical Republicans in the Civil War, and of the Republican coalition in the 1850s in Kansas or elsewhere, and the broader abolitionist movement that was tied in with all of those things, which tended to have a much more radical view of, of almost all social questions that had to be erased. And so you had the Republican leadership conniving with the uh, uh, the Democratic Party and their propagandists to revive the spirit of the hatred of, of anything that could be tinged as, as radical and seized on by the radicals of the day in the struggle against the emerging monopoly capitalist consensus. So that's a long way around. But I think it's not a coincidence that all of a sudden the previously two competing sides uh, of this story, some of those who are still around, who were both in the political elites, uh, constructed an alliance between one another to downplay the history of one side, the side that certainly was more in the morally correct territory, and to lift up the side of the, the interpretations of the pro-slavery side. The Jayhawkers obviously began as this extremely urgent and legitimate self-defense against the, the border ruffians that were coming in. But then once they were able to get some momentum and initiative, they were able to turn this into offensive attacks where they were actually going, you know, into Missouri, liberating slaves, launching these kind of guerrilla attacks, and then, you know, doing kind of attacks against um, pro-slavery settlements that were in Kansas. And, you know, they were doing things like that were seen as just so outrageous. I mean, right before the start of the Civil War, Jennison, you know, one of the Jayhawker leaders, uh, captured this guy named Russell Hines, who was a a well-known slave catcher, someone who would go as uh, capture, escaped enslaved people, return them to uh, the slave owners in the South. You know, Jennison captured this this slave catcher. They, him and his posse, they held a trial for him, and then they hanged him on the spot for his crime of capturing and returning uh, escaped enslaved people. And so this was seen as just like, oh my God, how could you do something so extra legal and unchivalrous and whatever? Yeah. Not to mention that, you know, probably the number of people that were lynched over this time period and maybe directly from Russell Hines returning them and people who were just lynched once they were returned. But, you know, it, all of a sudden the tables have turned. And there are so many years of just the pro-slavery forces having the complete dominance. All of a sudden, by the end of the 1850s, things have totally switched. And that was really this this motivation for Harper's Ferry, let the raid led by John Brown, which was in October of 1859. We describe it a bunch in our uh, our last episodes. So we're not going to get into it here. But why did Brown and the people that were following him, not just people who were the, the militants that were with him, but the financiers that were funding it, I mean, they felt that there was a lot of potential in this. And it was completely inspired by the victory of the Haitian Revolution. The idea that you could take, uh, this is what Brown wanted to do. The Harper's Ferry was just to get the weapons. And then he wanted to go into the mountains in the South and be able to, like the Haitians did, 
launch guerrilla attacks on the plantations, wage terror, and then be able to escape in the mountains where you can't really be followed by any type of large military force. Um, and this would have been crazy, you know, 10 years prior or whatever, but the the momentum had completely shifted and the arraignment of forces had completely shifted where it was actually feasible to talk about rate getting all these weapons and raising an army that can wage this guerrilla warfare in the mountains. And so this was kind of the right before the beginning of the Civil War, there was an attempt really to start a civil war by these guerrilla forces. And the intent, of course, was to wage it in this guerrilla style like they had been doing in Kansas. But then, of course, the outbreak of the actual civil war, you have the conventional fighting uh, and then the the unconventional fighting that were the, the Jayhawker style didn't exactly disappear. But of course, the main form of battle was the conventional fighting. But then we get to the beginning of the, the civil war. And we're not going to talk about it a lot because that's the subject of our whole entire other episode, but just in the context of the Jayhawkers. So then you have the the Civil War starts. The Jayhawkers refuse to join the Union Army because the Union Army at that time is pro-slavery. So they're like, we're just going to continue to do our own thing. And so the I think the most significant thing that they did as Jayhawkers, as this militia still who weren't a part of the Union Army was in September 1861, they led this, the Jayhawkers led this thing called the sacking of Osceola. And Osceola in Missouri was a famous slave catcher town. And so that this Jayhawker initiative in September 1861, they decide to go in, you know, they have a, they go in with a bunch of people. This is a town of about 2,000 pro-slavery people. It's a pro-slavery stronghold. It was uh, not authorized by Union military authorities, but there is this kind of understanding that, okay, these these guys are wild. They're going to do their thing. They go into Osceola. They burn the town to the ground. They free over 200 enslaved people. They uh, have court. They have trials for nine uh, prominent uh, slave owners and slave catchers who are in the town. They execute these nine people after holding this trial or whatever. And then they leave the town with hundreds of enslaved people following them, newly freed. 17 Jayhawkers were killed in the siege, but they caused like over a million dollars worth of, of dollars in that time of damage and stolen property. It was just this huge, huge event. And so that's really kind of to to bookend the story is that you have all of these incidents that took place, particularly in 1856 in, Can- in Kansas, but occurred to some of the years afterwards. And there's this kind of small guerrilla actions building momentum. But then when the Civil War starts, all of a sudden they have all this different kind of power and are able to take these big initiatives. And so you have this sacking of Osceola in 1861, but then you have all of these Jayhawkers like Jennison and Montgomery who then become commanders in the Union Army and other abolitionists who had been funding and supporting John Brown become commanders in the Union Army and they're in command of black units who want to be going out and doing Jayhawker style stuff of burning down plantations, doing these guerrilla actions outside of the conventional warfare. Um, And then, of course, you have these former Jayhawkers who are like, hell yeah, like I want to do that too. And so you have this alliance between the masses of black soldiers who are, of course, both free blacks and large numbers of escaped formerly enslaved people who are militantly wanting to take down slavery outside of the conventional battlefield. You have these leaders in the Union Army who were formerly doing that kind of thing, who were like, hell yeah, let's do this. And then, um, so that's why you have all these things on the side happening in the Civil War that were these revolutionary actions, this revolutionary aspect of the Civil War of these abolitionist white commanders, their black soldiers who are able to take things to a different level. And so I guess I want your kind of closing comments on that and how things just kind of roll into the Civil War and keep going with a ton more 
more power and momentum. And, you know, how much did this really contribute to the Union victory? These Jayhawker tactics and the leadership of these abolitionist commanders uh, and their soldiers who were using these so-called Jayhawker tactics, you know, how much did that really contribute to the Union victory? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's an important sort of element you know, obviously, I think in our last episode, I, I told you I thought that James Montgomery was, you know, unfairly depicted in the movie Glory, Glory which I love the movie Glory. That was really, to me, the biggest sort of dark spot, kind of, you know, presented that way as kind of a brigand. And of course, you know, some of that comes from elements of conversation in the Union Army headquarters about, you know, Charles Jennison, you mentioned James Lane, James Montgomery, that, uh, you know, they went a little too far in burning houses and pushing families in Missouri out of their homes as part of the kind of guerrilla warfare, especially in the first year of the Civil War that was happening in that theater as Missouri kind of became a, a guerrilla warfare zone, the also St. Louis becoming, you know, then a stronghold for the Union forces, really the, the German 48er immigrants being a key component of that. But um, be that as it may, James Montgomery, of course, would then later go on to serve in South Carolina, which is how he then ends up, you know, intersecting with the story of, of the 54th can, uh, uh, with the, the 2nd South Carolina, which was a contraband regiment that was raised there uh, on the coast of South Carolina after the Union Army took over. And also Montgomery, by the way, was the one who worked with Harriet Tubman in the Cohomac mm -hmm. River raid. So, you know, he was uh, playing a significant role and obviously willing to, you know, work closely with black people to uh, have the most effectiveness in his forces. But interesting point there, I think, in terms of historical connections with Montgomery and Harriet Tubman. But yeah, I mean, you know, what did it contribute to the Union victory? Uh, I, I would say probably not that much. But overall, I think perhaps the biggest impact was probably ideological in terms of their, you know, willingness, Kansas individuals to be at the forefront of some of the early efforts of arming black troops, which was so critical. Although, of course, it would go, you know, well beyond them. Although certainly some of the abolitionist forces that, you know, were involved in, uh, you know, a number of these elements certainly played uh, also sort of a, a, a sort of similarly large role there. You know, when you think about what we were talking about earlier as it concerns the Shadrick Minkins case in Boston with the resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act, I mentioned one of the people, Lewis Hayden, who was a, you know, a black man, part of the Vigilance Committee, part of the Underground Railroad. I say all that to say he was also the first person to suggest to Governor John Andrew that he run for governor. And of course, Governor John Andrews, the governor of Massachusetts, who raised the 54th Massachusetts. And, and that's an interesting part. Ben Quarles' book, uh, The Great Historian, The Negro in the Civil War, tells that story of Hayden being the first to suggest Andrew run for governor. So you can see that, you know, sort of the broader network of individuals involved in the anti-slavery cause, of course, played critical roles all throughout the broader Republican coalition that helped win the war and were the backbone of really the radical element of it. Wendell Phillips, of course, the famous radical abolitionist who spoke twice in D.C. during the Civil War, <coughs> or before the war, he probably would have been lynched if he'd gone to D.C., and spoke to big audiences, including President Lincoln. Um, and so you had the sort of radical Republicans and the ascendancy of the radical Republicans in the Civil War playing politically 
Um, and this is where it would be very significant. When I said not that much, I mean militarily. Politically, this is where it would be more significant, is you see the radical Republicans and the abolitionist movement, which is really the, the center of, of gravity for the radical Republicans, becoming one of the most important political elements during the Civil War and driving the total war and the elements of that, including the arming of, of black people the Emancipation Proclamation and so on and so forth, the role was significant. So militarily, I would say relatively limited, um, but I would say in terms of you know the broader sense of the country, the, the milieu that had backed the anti-slavery forces in Kansas certainly were quite influential in the total war phase uh, of the government and the, of the war and the prosecution of the war. So that's probably you know, the, 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 the military significance of it. And I think also the ideological significance of really becoming a crucible that what took place in Kansas of the new sectional politics that had been, you know, 100% declared with the Kansas Nebraska act, but in a way that was, was, was very contradictory, but was brought together in sort of a tighter focus with the rise of the Republican movement in 1856, with the center of gravity of all of those politics and the sharpening of that Republican coalition coalition being what was going on in Kansas. And again, of course, the leading edge, the most sort of radical element of it, the abolitionist movement at the center of it all, played a significant role across all of these different fronts and in all of these different arenas in ultimately uh, the abolition of slavery being an outcome of the Civil War. Right. And uh, Kansas, you could call a civil war before the Civil War and really heroic actions by the people who went to join the Jayhawkers, join people like John Brown, people who went to put their life on the line to really beat back the advancement of slavery. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, I think it's so important that we talk about this history because it's really lost uh, in our, you know, I think popular consciousness in the United States. Uh, you mentioned earlier The Good Lord Bird, which is this uh, new TV series starring Ethan Hawke. Uh, Hawk plays John Brown. It covers this period of bleeding Kansas, basically everything up and through Hyper's Ferry Raid and everything. And it's important that we're having this conversation because, you know, that probably being the biggest production that covers bleeding Kansas, John Brown in particular, it's first of all, it's a comedy. And uh, to me, dealing with that topic, especially when you have white writers for it to be a comedy is a little weird. But the entire depiction, we mentioned it earlier, Brown uh, and his followers being just kind of like nuts. Like there's so many moments. I didn't really make it that far. I made it up until Brown has the famous meeting with Frederick Douglass at his house. And that part was so gross to me that I was like, I, I can't actually watch this anymore. But, you know, throughout the, the episodes that I did watch, like there's all these moments where Brown is like, uh, or his guys are like, why are we doing this again? It's like, oh, oh yeah, because like the Bible says we should hate slavery. It's like not, it's just kind of like uh, just doing it for the fun of the violence or whatever. I don't know, some people, I'm always reviewing TV and movies as, as such a subjective thing. And so maybe there's people who will disagree with me on this, but I, I think it's just very weird the kind of way it was presented. And you mentioned earlier, Eugene, there's not enough triumphant depictions of this phase of our history, which should be, remembered as triumphant and important victories and tied very much in to the long struggle that we're still in today of multinational resistance to oppression, national oppression, and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I didn't even watch it, to be honest with you, because even just reading the depictions and the reviews, I just was not that interested. I mean, you know, anything that seems to me to be stressing, like, 
the quote unquote nuance and complications and <laughs> Brown, I was like, well, that just seems ridiculous to me. I mean, you know, like with, and to some degree irrelevant. I mean, it's sort of like raising, trying to find any possible way to make John Brown not someone people should revere. Like that's what it really comes down to, finding ways to sort of say, well, yeah, it was probably good he was against slavery, but um, <laughs> rather than to create any sort of, you know, heroic narrative out of it. And I think that, you know, and that's why I made that point about sort of the historical memory. And I went down a very long digression there about sort of the rise of monopoly capitalism. But I think, you know, we live ultimately, of course, you know, at the apogee, perhaps, of of U.S. monopoly capitalism and the culture in which it promotes has to certainly it can produce some level of of domesticated dissent in terms of popular media. But by and large, it has to operate in a way that is designed to suppress any more radical impulses that more radical individuals today could draw on. I mean, there's plenty of contradictions we can raise in, in the you know the Republican coalition, the Civil War, Kansas, Reconstruction, whatever. You know, the whole point in some ways isn't all the contradictions you know we can raise, but that sort of the more if you can see if you consider sort of the purest strain reconstruction of the sort of quote unquote free labor ideology of the Republican coalition, that even something that you could argue is relatively moderate in the context of class relations could still be considered akin to like the Paris Commune and red republicanism by the elites of the country, I think does speak to the fact that this era still holds a lot of pitfalls and dangers to the ruling class and the ruling elites in terms of how it's presented. And I think that it mitigates towards more Hollywood presentations that speak to, you know, sort of safer lessons, either having more complicated views uh, of the quote unquote Confederacy, like we mentioned that, I think I think it's called Ride with the Wind about the bushwhackers in Missouri trying to sort of humanize the slave owners. You know, it's easier, you know, the the Jesse James story. You can get all that out there, you know, in a big way. But if when it comes to John Brown, it has to be to kind of denigrate him to some degree to, to be able to put him on the screen. And I think you can see it's so difficult to get, you know, militant presentations uh, of the black liberation movement onto the screen, that when it does happen in a way that seems like it does some justice to it, like say Judas and the Black Messiah, everyone's so shocked because you expect it to somehow be like really bad. And so ultimately, I think that that just speaks to the role historical myth making continues to have and why it is important to talk about this and why it is important to talk about it holistically, but also to recognize it for not only what it represented at its time, but why for some reason the counter-revolutionary aspect of the Civil War, the events leading up to the Civil War and Reconstruction tend to still be, even in this era, like more or less the setting the pace or setting the tone, if not dominating the discussion about these periods. Um, just think about how fraught it is to talk about renaming things from the Confederacy. Like that just seems ridiculous. How is that shocking that you know you would not want to have statues? and military bases and other things like that named after people who tried to destroy the country if it's supposed to honor the country, quote unquote. Now we know it's not about that, but it does speak to the true national character, which is to embrace the more counter-revolutionary elements of the struggle against slavery in the historical memory portion of how we talk about it. So that there is, I think, a, a, a potentially radicalizing intellectual effect of talking about this history by opening up new vistas and new lanes of discussion of the quote unquote American experience that I think can reveal um, a more militant and rebellious reality that might speak to the times we live in now 
that I think certainly call out for a more militant and rebellious response to um, you know the deprivations and exploitation and oppression facing so many tens of millions of us. Eugene Prier, thank you so much for joining me to do this prequel to our other episode, Like Men of War, How Black Troops Whipped the Confederacy, and very much looking forward to having you back on for a sequel to that episode all about Reconstruction. Mike, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs>